episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Tom Sherrington. Tom is an experienced former teacher and head teacher. He has worked in and led comprehensives, grammar schools and international schools for 30 years, which gives him an incredibly wide range of experiences to draw upon. Tom is a popular speaker at events such as Research Ed. He is the creator of the popular and thought-provoking blog, TeacherHead.com. And he is the author of one of my favourite education books of recent years, The Learning Rainforest. Great teaching in real classrooms. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, Tom and I covered the following things and plenty more besides. What did Tom learn in each of the different school environments he worked in? What is Tom's favourite failure? And crucially, what did he learn from the experience? What are the rainforest and plantation metaphors that Tom uses throughout the book? And am I so wrong in thinking that the plantation setup is rather appealing? Just what is a knowledge-based curriculum? And perhaps more importantly, what would its opposite look like? Would Tom prescribe essential elements of each lesson, such as drills or low-stakes quizzes, or leave individual teachers to decide? If Tom was a head of, head of department today, what would his departmental meetings look like? How does Tom observe a lesson and give effective, meaningful feedback? And then it all kicks off as we discuss assessment. And I asked Tom about macro-summative assessment tracking, how it manifests itself most commonly in schools, and why is it so bad? And I'll tell you what, if you think me and Tom bang on about it for a while, and that's not even enough, I'm going to follow it up in the takeaway at the end of the show. And then we dive into mode A teaching, focusing upon two killer strategies, signal, pause, insist, and think Pair, share. And then it's time for mode B teaching, where we look at developing independence in our learners and the beauty of structured speech events. I then asked Tom what piece of research has most significantly influenced his thinking or his approach to teaching. And finally, what does Tom wish he'd known when he first started teaching that he knows now? Now, I'm going to come out and say it. I think this episode is another classic. For me, it's up there in terms of its application to teachers of all subjects with the Dylan William, Daisy Christodoulou, Doug Lemoff and Harry Fletcher Wood episodes. This one in particular has lots of takeaways for teachers who observe lessons, run departments or even run schools. It was an absolute privilege and a pleasure to talk to Tom and I'm pretty sure you are going to love this conversation. Two quick plugs before we carry on. Now, obviously, if you buy one book as a result of this episode, make it The Learning Rainforest. But if you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, available from all good and all evil bookstores. And if you have read the book, and I know loads of you have, and I'm so, so grateful, if you have time to give it a quick review on Amazon, that would be ideal. So long as it's a good review, of course. 
And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the most intelligent, engaged, and incredible listeners you could ever imagine, I'm talking about you lot here, then I am now offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of this podcast. Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more. And that'll address, that address will be included in the show notes. Anyway, I will deprive you for not a second longer as I introduce Tom Sherrington. Get yourself a cup of tea, sit back and enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Tom. So we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Okay, I, I know it's speedy, but this is hard for me. I, I, I'm going <laughs> to go for infinity because I love the idea that there are lots of different... It's, it's the number where it's actually its size has different is different. There's more than one infinity. It's an incredible thing. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this a little bit, but tell us more, because there'll be listeners out there, Tom, thinking, I need more. You can't just leave us on that, that kind of cliffhanger. Well, so, for example, you know, you can demonstrate that um, there are some decimals that can't be expressed as a fraction, and that's actually an infinite thing. So there are an infinite number of decimals and an infinite number of fractions, but the number of decimals is, is infinitely bigger than the number of fractions. So it's an, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. Can you remember when you first came across that? I think probably when I was doing A-level maths, I think the teacher showed me that. But it sort of comes in when you do, you know, recurring decimals and you learn the technique for how to express them as a fraction. And then you, you learn there are some that can't do that. And something like the simple derivation of showing that root two is irrational, where you, show, you know, you try to do a counterproof by saying, you know, imagine it is a, and it can be expressed as a, as a fraction. And then you show that that can't be true. Um, so it's that type of reverse proof. And then you think, well, that's, there's lots of other numbers like that, and et cetera, et cetera. Nice. I like it. I like your question number two, then. Yeah, and you've kind of alluded to this a little bit already, but what, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, it probably sounds very nerdy, but I, I really enjoyed learning about calculus. So I remember my brother was a year ahead of me at school, and when he went to sixth form and, and he had his SMP maths book around the house, I used to, I read it, and it, it started off with this fantastic f of x equals an f dashed of x and i just thought it was i, I just thought it was absolutely epic and i really got into it <laughs> so learning about calculus and then then applying it to physics and, and how it linked in with mechanics uh, i thought it was just brilliant nice superb and then final speed dating question tom what, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education i think i'd, I'd love to have worked at um cern and been involved in particle physics that's, that's something which probably if I hadn't been a teacher and I was, and I was slightly um, different mindset at a certain time I might have ended up going down that road Jeez, well flipping away in fact Tom you, you can switch upon how, how that might have happened and um, because my next question is just to give us a, a quick kind of overview of, of your career to date so perhaps starting your school days was um, was kind of maths and physics um, always on the agenda for you yeah, pretty much. I, 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 I always felt that maths um, came easily to me relative to other people. And that's one of those things that when I, I always you know, thought maths was enjoyable. And so, yeah, I did maths and further maths at O level. And then I did maths and further maths at A level. 
So I did this very hard maths A level, which was SMP for the maths to these very f- these famous five books, which is just fantastic differential calculus. And I really enjoyed that, although Uncredit found it incredibly difficult. It was ch- very challenging, but I really enjoyed it. And I was, and physics was, I was really into physics when I started doing O level physics. So I knew pretty early on that I wanted to uh, study physics. In fact, at one point when I was about 16, if someone had asked me, what do you want to do when you're older? I'd have said, I want to manage a nuclear power station. <laughs> it's not very glamorous, but I really, I, I just thought that was exciting. But then I went, so I did, I did straight physics at university in Manchester, which I, I, I loved every minute of doing that. But when it came to the end of it, I, I found the kind of whole milk round thing of like jobs in industry. And so I just, I just couldn't get my head around that. And also doing an, a master's or focusing on one particular area of physics. I was quite interested, interested in medical physics. Did a final year project on a brain scanner design. You know, how do you make nuclear magnetic resonance work and how you design a magnet that's strong enough and all this sort of thing. And I, that was interesting. But I thought, can I really just devote my life to just that? And I, I found that very <laughs> difficult. So I saw this flyer was in, was in the, the library and it offered £1,500 extra as the first year of a bursary to do physics or maths and te- teacher training. And I thought, well, I could bum around for another year as a student <laughs> and be paid a little bit more. So I, I, I did the PGC and then, you know, what, then I did my first teaching practice and I, I really loved it. I just thought, well, this is good. And then I thought, well, there's no point in doing it because you're not really qualified until you've done a year and passed so I thought I'd have to get a job and see it through and then got a job as a in a sixth form college which I really enjoyed and then I just realized that I really liked being a teacher so that's kind of the path it took and when you got your first job Tom was that as a were you employed as a science teacher or as a maths teacher uh I I got a job as a physics and maths teacher so it was a levels only and I taught two-thirds physics a third maths uh, and Jeez. I was only 20, um, well, gosh, 21. So literally, I remember having my 22nd birthday in, in the staff room, and, and, and everyone was going, <laughs> what the hell? How can you only be 22? <laughs> but I was. It was, um, it was quite weird. So I felt very young, and I was much closer in age to the students than most of the staff, and that was quite, took me a while yes. to get around that. Jeez. And did you, um, throughout your kind of teaching career, before you moved up into kind of um, more leadership roles, was it always a combination of, of maths and physics or did you did you specialise more on the physics side later on? Um, well, actually, it's odd because I, I, I went from being thinking of myself as a physics teacher. And then when I came down to London and worked in comprehensive schools, you, you sort of become a science teacher. So, yes, and I learned to teach biology and chemistry and I really enjoyed that. I also taught maths. I taught smile maths. So I've always been a bit of both, but mainly physics, and then and then later on I've sort of tried various other things. But whenever whenever I've had a chance to teach A level physics, I've always taken it. I taught IB physics when I went abroad, uh, and I always feel more comfortable doing that. In fact, recently at half term, just gone, I did a day's revision with some students at my wife's school, A level physics students, and I just went straight in there. And I, I <laughs> I had a great. I don't know if they enjoyed it, but I had a great time <laughs> running through the whole of A level physics in a few hours. It was it was great. So that's where I'm kind of at my most sort of comfortable. Nice. Now, now you've mentioned a key word that I'm, I'm definitely going to come back to in a second, and that's the the smile cards. But, but but before we get there, just just give us a quick overview from classroom teacher Tom. What what other roles have you held? 
I, my first um, promoted job was to be in charge of PSHE, actually, which is not an odd, uh, maybe unlikely, but I, I always thought that that was something which in, interested me. That that that. Well, I think to be honest with you, it's just the job was came up, and it was a way of earning more money. If I'm absolutely honest, <laughs> yeah. So I, and and all the science jobs were taken at that point. So I and but when I got into that, I really liked gave me this insight of. I was responsible for something like 30 tutors PSHE program and the managing all these people who most of whom didn't want to do it uh, taught me a lot about, you know, mobilizing people, designing a curriculum which had some relevance. And I really got into teaching sex education and I, I found that it was really something which I thought was really important. And you know, that was my first role. I did that for a couple of years. And then I got the job. My kind of big break, if you like, in terms of leadership was becoming a head of year at Holland Park School and, and at that point a head of year was paid the same as a head of department it was you, know, you had 240 students they were, you, were, you were responsible for them in, in lots of ways and it was I started with a year seven and you took assemblies every week and responsible for academic monitoring and so on and that that was really I love that job it was probably one of the most difficult jobs I've had, but it was I, I, that really gave me an insight into whole school leadership issues because I, I quickly started realizing that academic achievement meant you had to engage with all the heads of department, and it wasn't just about you know mopping up fights and <laughs> sort of distress, which actually, actually was quite a lot of the job. But it was it's about how well how do I as an overview person deal with achievement and assessment. And I, and I found that interesting. So that led into being then the senior leader later. And what what senior positions have you held? Is it did you go the kind of assistant head, deputy head, head teacher route? Yeah, but I was only assistant head for about two terms because then I, I got the job at Holland Park doing that, and then I, I saw a job that came up to open a new school in Haringey as deputy head uh, with a brand new school. And you started at Easter with a terms run-in before the school opened. Oh, nice. But it's one of the things that I get always, I get irritated about where people are going on about free schools, as if there's never ever been any new schools before. <laughs> and I, I, I'm always saying that they just, just call them new schools, because as far as I can see, <laughs> when I opened up the, free, the, the new school in Harringay, in a local authority, it was just the same as anyone else has done with a free school, uh, to all intents and purposes. So... It's just a new. So I did that as deputy head, and that was amazing. So there was just eleven teachers, me and the me and the head, and nine teachers, and we set up a new school. And I did everything then. Sort of, sort of the first year, I was the network. We had no money, so I had to do everything like the network. I, I remember plugging in all the computers and designing <laughs> a curriculum. We did the, we did the timetable in about ten minutes one afternoon. <laughs> year seven, and we appointed all the teachers. It was it was a golden time. I loved that, and then year after year we grew so i was only sort of 33 and a deputy head but it was in a tiny school so i grew with it and i learned a lot as the school got bigger each year uh, about so that was quite a good opportunity for me and what what came after that then i then we decided to go to i was sort of nearly 40 and i thought am i really just going to do this for the rest of my life well something we can't just you know i mean i've been a teacher since i was 22 i can't just um do that and so we were looking for opportunities and i saw an advert for a job in jakarta in indonesia for an international school and it was pretty eye-watering we it was just 
eye-watering, mouth-watering. It was one of those. <laughs> it, looked, it looked absolutely gorgeous, and it said that you got a house and a car, and it was an amazing environment. And it just, we just thought, wow, how amazing. And our kids could go for free to the school, which was really an attractive. So nice. my wife and I and my two children, we went off to Indonesia for three years. And then when I was there, the head of the secondary school left after the first year, and I got the job as the head of the secondary school. So actually my first headship was running the secondary school in the international school for 500 students. So, so it, it sort of helped with the career as well. We never, never really meant to. I'd have been happy to go there just as a physics teacher, but I started off as a, as a deputy head and then, and then got a bit, became the head. So that was, that was an amazing experience because I, for the first time I realised that work ethic was something which was a big variable and I don't. I hadn't seen a work ethic uh, like that, and I, I realised that there was some, there was stuff to learn from, and also the IB working in a school where we taught the IB was really amazing. The the, the whole philosophy of it and the, the standards in the curriculum and the how it's all assessed as a whole package. I, I thought it was superb. And just on this, Tom, because when I was reading your book and I was, I was reading about these kind of different experiences, it almost seemed like the, the kind of perfect recipe that you're getting all these different experiences. And it really comes through in the book that you learnt a lot about the kind of high expectations and work ethics for, from your time in Jakarta. But you also learnt about some of the other sides of leadership from some of the challenges in the UK. Were you, go out, were you going out deliberately to acquire as many different experiences and as varied an experience as possible? Or were you kind of just kind of stumbling along and, and these different experiences were just happening if that makes sense i think they were just happening i've, I've always felt that i don't know I, maybe i'll get bored easily but I, I i think that life if you know if you're going to have a career or just have an interesting life you, you should try to do as many things as you can and you know my my other members of my family have worked abroad and I, it's something an ambition i always had that you know i, I always think when you've retired or you're sort of sitting in your retirement space, looking back over your career, if you haven't done certain things, would you want to regret that? And I always wanted to work abroad. So I thought well, that would be a good opportunity. But then you, have to, then you have to see opportunities that arise. You have to look. So I think the key decisions are things like when to look in the TES and when not. <laughs> because if you're not looking, you don't, you don't see things. And there, was almost, there are moments where you're, you're more actively searching. But sometimes you don't know what you're looking for. So when the job came up at, to set up Alexandra Park School, yeah, I wanted to, to move on. I wanted to do something. And I'd been at Holland Park seven years, and it was actually quite I, – I just needed a change from that school because it was it was tough, and, there, and sometimes you need respite, actually. I, 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 personally, I do. So yes. seeing the chance to open a new school, that was fantastic. And then I wanted to do move abroad. And then in Jakarta, three years – I mean, some people stay there forever, but – for us, Absolutely. we well, thought, well, you know, actually, we don't want our children to grow up in a slightly weird expat bubble where they, they go from the <laughs> aircon house to the the driver car and they can't walk on the pavement, you know, because that's, it's just too hot and it's not a great city to, to grow up in. So, we, And also we wanted them to grow up in England. So, we, you know, you just make those sort of life decisions. Going to work in a grammar school was an unusual one for me. So that's probably the weirdest decision I've made. But I, but I learned a huge amount from, from working at, uh, as the head of a grammar school. And I, I really, still now, I draw on it constantly because it's, it was such a rich experience. 
Jeez, flipping out, Tom. That yeah, and again, as I said before, just to reiterate, it it really comes through in in the book. You you're drawing upon all these experiences, and we'll definitely dig into those. But I, I can't resist asking you a little bit more about these smile cards. So I'm going to apologise for the non-maths listeners here because. Um, you're actually the, the the second guest to talk about having taught with smile cards, and you're an esteemed company because the other one was Dylan William. He he spent a lot of time using smile cards. So for for listeners who aren't aware, because these are still available and um, they're freely available um, on the internet, and I'll and I'll put a link in the show notes. Can you just tell us a little bit about what smile cards were? And what I'm interested, Tom, is what what were the, what what were those lessons like teaching with them? Because it sounds crazy when, when you hear about it, I think. Well, let me just say, I'm glad you mentioned Dylan William there, because he, he wrote me a, a lovely email recently when, when he read my book, and he, he said he, he liked it. But he did say the one thing he disagreed with in the whole book was about my view of smile. So he mentioned it. <laughs> and he, he said that, so he, it sounded to me like he was a proper math teacher that knew how the system worked. And I would not definitely take my view of it as typical. So I want to get that caveat in right now. Sure, sure. So my experience was that I was sort of dumped in to the smile regime. And, you know, there were teachers there who taught with it for many years. And they they sort of transcended the kind of cataloging system. So they knew what the maths was underneath it. And so they would, it was a, there was a flow. But when you were new to the system, it that that's something you just can't automatically acquire. So you, it, it, it was very bureaucratic for me. So you have to look up where somebody is on their system and basically all the cards are, are leveled according to a certain scale and they're 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 they're, they're categorized by their subject material so let's say you would have a sort of a level five algebra card you would just get and it would be called something like 1092 and the student would be told that on their list of 10 cards and they would go to the folder and get 1092 and then sit at their table and do it and it could be just a set of questions where you know a problem to do, and then they would finish it, check it, and then go on to the next card. And you had this sort of checking process of making sure the students were completing their cards. And when they'd done their 10, they would do an overall kind of check with you to see whether they're ready to move on and, and all the rest of it. So it could mean that in the, in the lesson, every single student was on a different topic. It was, it was absolutely bonkers. <laughs> so that there was... <laughs> Literally, it was like a series of quick one-to-ones. That's what teaching was. Quickly pushing on, explaining this, explaining that, helping someone who was stuck, processing a card, fitting in a sheet, sending someone back to the back of the queue. It, there was never a moment where you'd stand up and say, okay, guys, let's talk about fractions, or let me, let me give you some novel examples. <laughs> or, it was the weirdest thing. And that, that, it was just, I just thought, how are you supposed to do maths? And when I was at Holland Park, the maths department made this sort of r- radical decision to... To, to kind of group the cards into topics and teach them within a certain topic range um, so that we got away from this idea of of, it, of everyone doing a different topic. And that was a breakthrough. And that was, and that was like, you know, you're kidding me. You know, like, we're actually going to teach within a certain topic area. That was, but honestly, that was, that was a big stage. And... And it was obvious, you know, once you, and then, you know, when, and then there was a change of regime and, you know, scrapped the cards and someone brought in maths textbooks and, and it became a slightly different approach, which to me was eminently sensible because I had found the whole thing very, it felt to me like the kids were basically teaching themselves maths under supervision, which clearly is not what the intention was, but that's what individualized learning can end up being. And that's the whole premise of smile. That's what the, the I and the L stand for. So it really, 
it didn't work for me. But I think probably I was doing it wrong, or I was t- I was wasn't shown how to do it properly. Because if someone like Dylan William raves about it or, or values it anyway, you think, well, I think I probably believe him more than I believe me. But he must have been doing it differently. In fact, he said he never sat down during his smile lessons. He actually mentioned that in his email, which meant he was definitely doing it different to me. So I, I was there, like you know, bookkeeper at the front, like. And and yeah. I was I, teaching science was much better for me there because that was a different different thing. Jeez, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, I'm going to just put my hands up here, Tom. I'm in the same boat as you. I, I don't think I could teach a lesson effectively with, with those kind of cards. It's, it's almost like the ultimate form of differentiation, but differentiation gone incredibly wrong because just kids are just doing all sorts. I get the sense that you've no way of, of accurately or efficiently getting an idea where kids are up to, where you need to give help. You end up having kind of similar conversations with, with loads of different kids around the room. But the, but the irony is the um, some of the questions are absolutely phenomenal so i think there's still a place for them in, in my opinion anyway yeah. to kind of dip in and, and use some of these cards but yeah adopting the whole system then most about about smile which was that they took in, they took this sort of um, multiculturalism which was kind of what it was called then really seriously and in a way which i thought was it, it, it felt groundbreaking so all all the people all the children in the stories for the, where the maths problems are and all the lots of references. So there were some really good cards about different number systems from from India or or you know Arabic counting systems or whatever. And all of that was 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 really really cool. So in a in a very mixed you know ethnic diverse school, culturally diverse school, the maths cards were were written for the community, and because it was familiar, it was that was sincere and powerful. And actually, that's the thing that was the best thing about it to me that that was a conscious effort and it was ever absolutely committed to and it didn't feel sort of tokenistic it, it felt like it was it was you know pro- uh, you know a proper attempt to break away from uh, you know to actually do something about the fact that that was the communities that we that we were serving so i i think that's that's to be applauded they probably were quite quite you know, groundbreaking in that respect that's interesting. I, I hadn't heard that aspect of it. That's no, that's fascinating. That Tom. Um, well, we're going to turn now to see. It's my favourite question. Um, I ask all my all my guests who've, who've been teachers or are still teachers, and that's to uh, describe their favourite failure. So I'd like you to think back, Tom, and just pick a lesson, any lesson you like um, that you, you taught, but crucially one that didn't go according to plan. And what I'm particularly interested in is is what did you learn from the experience? I, I think. One, one of the things that I, I'll tell you an example of, of where I'd been at the grammar school and I and I I sort of got used to teaching in a certain way because you could, and I tried to replicate that uh, in my next teaching job in a comprehensive school. Well, I was the head teacher, but I was still teaching, and I and I thought I'll try to see if this will directly transfers, and it didn't. <laughs> and and it was to do with uh, teaching electric circuits. So one of the things that I loved about the grammar school was that. You, teachers developed a kind of a trust and a, a, a kind of level of expectations of students where you could embrace struggle to quite a high level. So you, I, I, as a science teacher, I would say, OK, guys, there's, there's some wires. Make some circuits and um, let's see what, what you come up with. And then we'll go around and we'll just discuss them. And that, you could have awesome lessons like that. I mean, really, the kids were just extraordinary. But when I came back and I just thought, well, I'm going to do that in my comprehensive school. The fact is that it worked for some of the kids, but actually for a lot of the kids, it was just an absolute nightmare. And 
you realize that you know this you can get very sort of binary about talking about what's effective the truth is that there are some students at my at, at my school Highbury Grove who, who who really loved that approach and in fact if you hadn't allowed them to have to do it you're sort of denying them an opportunity but a lot of the students they needed you to walk them through step by step and show them how to do it because they just were just basically messing about with wires and it didn't mean anything to them and I think that's really instructive that that it, it you, you know you you have to be more planned and more subtle about these things and you have to differentiate approaches and that also taught me that that's, you know, there's a reason why you know, there's sort of tension between sort of talking about selective schools and non-selective schools sometimes I think people are, are way too keen to dismiss one or the other because in a, in a typical comprehensive school there's plenty of children who would comfortably get into the selective schools but they're not necessarily given the same level of challenge as they would be in a selective school and I think we need to be prepared to accept that at the same time, if you just think sink or swim, challenge is good, that's a mistake. So there are children you need to ladder the learning, you need to step it up really, really deliberately. So I learned a lot from that. I was thinking, so I have to be much more sophisticated in my thinking here. I need to plan that. I need to plan a type of lesson where I can scaffold for to a certain level and keep doing that for those guys, but then let those guys off the leash because they're ready and try to emulate what, I would have done typically for this equivalent sorts of students at, at the grammar school. So that to me was like a classic, uh, a, a really good example of failure leading to all kinds of conclusions. Now that, that's an absolutely superb example that Tom. And I wonder when you say that it kind of the approach you took in the grammar school was great for those students and, and the kind of trying to replicate that approach in, in the comprehensive you taught and worked for some students. Is it, a sim is it too simple to say that the distinguishing factor between those it worked with and those it didn't work with w was knowledge? Or is that is that too simplistic? W were there other no, factors uh, coming into that play? That is exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's about prior knowledge. And, and also a, a kind of confidence that comes through having experienced success. So if, if, you're, if you're a, a confident learner that generally you do well at school and generally learning works, when things don't quite go according to plan, you don't to totally freak out and put your hand up and say, I'm stuck and I'm struggling. You just think, well, hang on a minute. Normally, I'm quite good at this. So let me just, you're just more resilient to that moment of struggle and you just sort of power through because normally you're fine. But if your experience is that generally learning is usually too hard for you or that normally you don't get things or that everyone else seems to be better than you, then as soon as it's hard, you just go, well, that's me. You know, I don't. And, and then you sort of, you know, it's various negative attitudes kick in, which is that you to build, you know, to, to protect your self-esteem, you then act out or you um, diminish the, the the task and you say it's rubbish or, you know what I mean? It just becomes because you have to, you know, no one wants to sit there, sit there feeling horrible. So you kids protect themselves and become quite defensive or they they catch off each other. They just copy. So you need to because they don't want to look, they don't want to be exposed. And that's that, those self-esteem issues are very, very key. So, yeah. The thing about grammar school that was really incredible was that the students and the teachers had this sort of reciprocal, mutually reinforcing cycle of high, high challenge, high response, confidence, trust, challenge, trust, response. And the teachers' general average level of demand that they would give to the students was just phenomenal. I'd never seen anything like it. And just the amount of homework they'd set, the level of depth they'd expect from a typical response was just phenomenal. 
And it was nothing to do with the children being necessarily cleverer. It's just that they, they, ex- they could expect a lot, and they so they did. And I, I think that's the key. So in the in the more mixed school, you've got to think if those students were in the, another environment, I would be expecting way more of them. And I've got to try to emulate that here because that's got to be right for them. But these guys just need to have their confidence built, and building confidence needs a different approach. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting, that, Tom, because, again, I don't know whether this is kind of math specific or not, but I, I assume it applies to other topics as well. There's certainly not a perfect kind of positive linear correlation or relationship between knowledge and confidence. And for me, it always, I, I always worry, and this has been a big change in my teaching, and I'd love to get your take on it, just uh, giving students choice um, over kind of what they do in lesson and their kind of direction that they, they take their, their learning and, and how they proceed through an activity. Just listening to you describe that I'm, I'm thinking of I know quite a few kids who I've taught who would be very good mathematicians but whose confidence for, for a number of reasons would be would be pretty rock bottom and if I gave them the choice between kind of doing an activity where they have a bit of freedom to to investigate different lines of inquiry or they can have the kind of scaffolded support from me they choose the latter any day of the week because they don't have that confidence. And yet I know that it's going to be much better for them to, to do the former because that's going to push them on further, get them thinking deeper and so on. So for me, there's kind of, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a kind of internal struggle for me, that, that it's not just about giving kids, equipping kids with knowledge, but I, it's building the confidence as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, and I, I think it's... Um... I think cho- I think if if one of the choices you've given students is the choice to be lazy or a mediocre, then that's a bad choice. If you're giving the kids mm. a choice between two pathways, which are both good choices, so it's like saying to when you're when you're a, you know, when you feel you've done a good bit of parenting, you said to your child, you know, you can either do this thing I want or this thing I want, and the kids feel they've had a choice, and you've got, <laughs> and you think, yeah, there you go, and there's me being flexible, but <laughs> so. If, if you've got an op- if you've got options built into a curriculum where where all paths are good, um, then that's then that's fine. But if you just said choose and and there are soft options in amongst the choices, that's not healthy. But also, and I'm really convinced by this idea about about um, worked examples and stuff like that. You know, for the cognitive science in maths, where I, I actually think that students often need a lot more support early, and you can let them off the leash too soon. To flounder yes. and struggle and develop and sort of sort of negative mindsets around maths being hard because they just weren't ready. And actually, for some students, do you need to cons? You need to ladder. You know, you need to scaffold much further than you might intuitively do because they just need it. So I also think you just we don't do enough practice. So there's a whole. So maybe I don't know. Straying off the topic a bit here, but I think choices the sort of self-direction through practice i think is one of those things so I, I i've seen really good lessons where you have sort of tiered resort tiered questions where there's lots of lots of all types of questions and the students just sort of select a starting point and if they're succeeding they they skip and they they, they find another point where they're starting to be a bit more challenged and the students learn to choose and self-direct in that way and sometimes the teacher guidance is useful there to say, now, come on, be a bit bold. I think you could try those. And sometimes you say, no, don't rush on too fast because you're still not entirely fluent. So a bit of teacher guidance around that as well. So they learn to make good choices. But that type of thing I found 
And I've, I've seen students who are very good at making those choices and they know where they're at, they know where they're comfortable and building success and confidence through practice is, is, a, is a really, really positive thing. Got it. That's fa- fascinating, Tom. Well, let, let, let's turn our attention to the book. So the, the Learning Rainforest. Um, and first off, and I, this sounds like I'm obviously going to say this, but I, I genuinely mean this, Tom. It's an absolutely wonderful, absolutely wonderful book. I've had the pleasure of reading it twice now. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've got so many questions um, for you. So we'll, we'll just kind of see how okay. we get through. But um, the, the first thing I'm interested in, um, and I asked the same thing to, to Harry Fletcher Wood when he was on a previous episode, is is why why did you want to write this book and particularly at this time because i think this is kind of a golden age of, of of education i think we're finally seeing um kind of research from from cognitive science and memory and so on kind of enter the mainstream so what why did now feel like the right time to to write your particular book tom and and, and kind of the follow-up to that is who's the book for uh <laughs> i'll start with the last bit the book is for teachers it's 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 I mean, I've written that in in the in the bits of the you know beginning and top and tailing of the book that I feel like I'm I'm directing my thinking at teachers who want to engage with any uh, the process of becoming a better teacher. So that's who it's for, and I feel like it's a kind of um, I've having been in teaching for thirty years, I'm sort of saying, look, this is all like this is everything I can think of about teaching, and I just sort of giving it to you to to do what you like with essentially, but just keep on evaluating. <laughs> but that, that, I feel that like sort of baton passing thing is. You know, it's, I, I, I kind of sincere about that. I, I felt that. But I've also, it really, the book is a kind of combination of five years of blogging. So I discovered, you know, as a physics teacher that I, I, writing wasn't necessarily the thing I felt that I was particularly good at when I was at school. But I think there's, there's something about an efficiency of, of writing, which I, I, through blogging I've honed and you get response through, for it. So after five years of blogging, and, and getting, you know, reasonably positive feedback about that from people, thinking that actually I have a voice, and I thought, well, you know, I I I've got something to say. And then to, to be to per- perfectly blunt, I mean, I I did have a change in job situation where I was out of school, and then that didn't go well, and I ended up not having a job. <laughs> so there is literally the thing of right, okay, I'm going to branch out, I'm going to try to become a freelance consultant, and but I've also got time until that kicks off. So I, I actually had this amazingly, really freakily serendipitous exchange with John Cat, the publishers, where I typed an email to uh, Alex, who's the main man at John Cat, and I just said to him, uh, John Tomset has told me that you, you published his book and you'd be good to work with, and I pressed send. And then instantly, <laughs> like on my inbox, there was this message from John Cat, and I was thinking, oh, is that like some fly? <laughs> But it wasn't. I opened the email, and it was an email from Alex saying, "Hi Tom, we, we've you know really we're interested in what you've been saying, and we we'd like to talk to you about writing a book." So we literally exchanged emails at the same time, which is absolutely freaky. It was we just were thinking, did that actually happen? Literally simultaneously, <laughs> and it did. So it was sort of meant to happen, and I did have time, and I sketched out lots of dates in my diary, and I thought, well, I'm going to write this book, and I just thought, well, what, what I want to do is I want to combine this kind of broad broader picture stuff to do with say progressive and traditional education curriculum issues and assessment which are things i feel like i've written quite a lot about in my book in on my on my blog but i also wanted to have a section which was 
Yeah, but how do you, what, what do you do with that in practice? So the kind of the kind of this part two, which is the the strategies. So I just thought, well, the simplest thing to do is just have a part one and a part two. And I got this really lovely advice from some people who who suggested that I'd be not to try to be too kind of textbooky and even handed to actually just say what you think and be your and yes. be your own person. And if you if you think something, say it. If you have a preference, state it. And articulate a, a kind of a personal vision, if you like, rather than trying to constantly weigh up pros and cons like it's some kind of essay. And I, and I once I got into that, I thought, oh, no, well, this this is flowing. Um, and <laughs> it, it just sort of in some sections of it just wrote. I wrote them just super quickly. Others were a little bit more. I, I wanted to be a bit more thorough in the research. So it took longer, but. Yeah, I, I honestly, and the response has been amazing. I just can't believe it. Actually, I, I'm still amazed that people re- so many people have bought it, and I, I've got so much feedback from it. So I'm I'm absolutely thrilled. It's, it's done way better than I ever hoped. That's superb, and it, it deserves to, Tom. Um, just before we dive into the uh, kind of specifics of the book, more of a selfish question, really, and I've, I've asked this, the same one to um, a couple of authors who've, who I've been lucky enough to interview. Just interested in what your kind of writing process looks like. Whenever you say you, you kind of block out a day in your diary to do some writing, do you have any kind of habits, routines, treats you give yourself, any sanctions you oppose on <laughs> yourself if you don't don't make a word limit or something? How, what's a typical kind of writing day or period of time look like, Tom? Well, I think the first thing to say is most of my writing is it happens late so i feel like i'm one of those people that i have to almost get everything else out of the way first so any you know talking to my family eating watching the telly whatever and then it's like there's nothing else i can do so i'm i sort of work <laughs> through and like really late nights so sort of or evening sort of eight till two something like that so most, oh, most of my books are probably written between eight and two rather than say in the Flip morning so I almost wrote none of it in the mornings. That's just uh, because there's always too many. There's too many other distractions. So, but have you have you always been that way, Tom? Would you do like schoolwork late and stuff? Or is it just writing? Uh, I'd I'd always do that. Yeah. So it's just yeah because you you know you've got a family to interact with and there were some days where I was working from home where I just felt the mornings was just uh, just not productive. You, you, I tried to do it, but I was always thinking, oh, well, I'll do this first, and I'll do that first, and I'll check my emails, disaster, you know, and then. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, so what I, so what I would do is, I, what I, I'm very methodical with, with the writing, because, and it's the same with writing a blog. I always, I, I sort of, you know, big picture sections, then write a section, and then subsections within that, and, it, and, and then you get to the bit, well, I'm just going to write this bit now, and then I just bang that out. So, Whenever I'm writing something, it's actually very focused because I know that's the bit I'm writing, and I know where it fits in a bigger framework. And so, I've, most of my thinking, actually, that kind of hard bit is what what what's the what's the sequence of ideas, and I make lists of kind of ideas that need to go in, and then right within that idea, I'm going to talk about those bits, and then I just go okay, bam, and then. And then I find that it's easier because then you, you just know what you want to write about that specific thing, and you think, well, that's that's that bit, and then you then you do the next section. So it, it feels that sounds quite mechanical, but it's it's just organised, I think, in 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 terms of how, you know how what you're writing at any one moment. 
I like it. Fa- fascinating. Yeah, fa- no, thanks for that, Tom. Um, right, okay, let, let's dive into the book then. Now, b- before we get into the specifics, there's two kind of central metaphors um, that you use throughout the book, the, the rainforest and the plantation. So just to inform our conversation going forward, can you just give us a bit of an overview about what they are and, crucially, how they relate to practices within schools, Tom? Right, well, I'll start with the plantation, because in a way, the rainforest metaphor that I wrote about in my blog originally was a reference, was a kicking against the, 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 the plantation. So the plantation is this idea of contro- uh, control and standardization being the dominant mode of how schools are organized. And it, it means that there's a, it emanates really from a, a leadership culture of people wanting to micromanage everything. So you, you sort of have, you know, checklists for lessons, rules for lessons, three-part lesson, learning objectives on the board, and in even in even things like technology, so you know we this is a good thing, so we're all going to do this because it's the thing everyone needs to use. And someone has an idea in a leadership team, and they think, well, it's a good idea, therefore we must make sure everyone's doing it. And so we make it a rule; everyone must do it, even though the original idea was sort of you know may may or may not have been evidence based. And so you know, plantation thinking is can can feel quite restricting to teachers because they're not often engaged in the reason why things are being done. And you get sort of compliance culture, you end up people jumping through hoops and doing things literally just because they're on the tick list, not because of any inherent belief in them. And you get also speed camera behaviors where people literally only do them when someone's coming to watch because the rest of the time they, they don't really believe in it. So they don't do it, all those things. So and that applies to teaching and learning assessment, performance management, all sorts of things. It also applies to teaching so if you're a kind of plantation philosophy in teaching is, is you know, here's a stat here's what an excellent thing looks like so you've all got to make one of these so the rain the rainforest is, is trying to say well what does it look like if you see it the other way around it's like what if we just create conditions where things happen and we just value different directions and i and i really learned a lot about this when i was at kegs because you saw excellent teaching in lots of different forms and I thought, well, God, I've never seen anyone teach like this before, but look, it's amazing. So I would never have told anyone to teach this way, but it's brilliant. So why does it work? It's because that teacher has found a groove for themselves and they've discovered this sort of way of being. And sometimes it was ha- heavily teacher-led, student-led, um, you know, with lots of flip learning, lots of students reading and bringing into the class. Sometimes it was very directed, very instructional. And sometimes it was you know, expert chemistry teachers just almost lecturing, but explaining things so brilliantly, lesson after lesson, getting amazing results. And I thought, well, this is this is the rainforest. This is like, who would have thought in a traditional grammar school? It's not all stuffy, talk, chalk and talk in a, in a cliche. It's actually just lots of effective practice in lots of different forms. So that's where that came from. So I thought, well, you, had, you, you have to value that. You have to, first of all, you have to, and I remember having this really, really significant conversation with a, a chemistry teacher who was also in charge of computing, where we were talking about what system to buy for the school. And he said, well, why do you need to buy a system? Why don't you just educate people about why you might use, use digital tools in the classroom and see which ones they want to use? And they might not want to use any. And I thought, God, yeah, why? And why, why, why am I saying what's the best platform and we're all going to buy it? Because that was my mindset. And he just said, you don't need that mindset. There are loads of platforms. Why, why mandate one? 
And I thought that was quite an inspirational kind of moment for me. I thought, no, why do we mandate stuff constantly? We're total control freaks. <laughs> but then actually in the metaphor of the book, I thought, well, actually, the rainforest is really about the kids. It's about seeing excellence can take many forms. And if you start seeing everyone as like just kid, the students in some sort of, you know, data terms or they're very individual. And there's lots of research around, you know, relationships and actually expertise around knowing individual kids. And I, I really think that's really important to stress. You're not just teaching physics to a class. You're teaching physics to, to Susan and Stephen and, and Mohammed. And then they're individuals and it's their understanding of physics, which you're trying to generate, not just sort of get them to do what you want. And, and understand things the way you understand them. You're the expert, but they're the learner, and it's their learning that you're trying to to foster. So you need to you've got to be prepared to to break into your, your tendency to control everything and standardise. So the rainforest has this sort of dimension, and which is much more open, much more open to the possibility that kids can surprise you. They can do things which you don't expect. They can pro- produce excellence in forms which you don't know are possible until they produce them and that kind of thing and i saw that a lot at cakes students could produce extraordinary work that i would never have believed was possible if i just been getting them to make the thing i wanted it's it's fascinating this tom because um again the the thought that was running through my head as as i'm reading the book is that your experience at cakes sounds sounds incredible and it sounds like that's the exact kind of model or, or appropriate metaphor for, for describing how that school should be run how the curriculum should be and so on but all the time i'm reading it i'm thinking actually this plantation model the, the, there's something to that now i've, I've never been a head teacher and um, i don't think i ever will be a head teacher but i wonder i've looked when you look back at it either now or, or kind of putting yourself back in the shoes of when you're a head teacher at some some of these other schools, did the plantation kind of set up hold a certain appeal to you in the sense that you had a bit more control over what was going on? Well, would that be fair to say or not? I think so. And I think that, you know, the plantation, this is the thing I do. I try to explore this a little bit in the book. Um, I had a bit of feedback from some people saying they didn't want me to soften it too much. But the fact is that, you know, in a real rainforest, that something will die and wither away and get strangled by vines, and <laughs> not everything will thrive. And it's a bit, and it is literally, you know, survivor of the fittest. And that isn't a very healthy metaphor for a school. You know, where you want everyone to survive and everyone to thrive. In fact, so you do need to have some minimum standards, and that's true for the teachers as well. You know, not every teacher is highly effective immediately, or you know, there's a scale, isn't there? There's some teachers are more confident and more effective than others, and they're on a journey. So there's a risk that if you just say, off you go. I always get a bit frustrated when you hear see some people on Twitter saying, I just trust my staff to teach well. I think, well, but that's a bit, actually, that just sounds to me like you've told them to sort of, you know, bugger off and do what you like. And I, I don't think that's right. You know, we're actually, some teachers need a lot of help and they may not even realise they do. Some teachers really do. And so you do need to structure schools so that, you can flourish and go off when you're ready, but actually, if, if you're not ready, that you're given quite a, a defined sort of set of parameters to help you will work within. And that the getting the balance between those two is probably the, the central challenge of, of school leadership. You know, it's not not one. It's that kind of tight versus loose. You know, some people really need to be let off the leash and given maximum autonomy for them to really get the best out of themselves, and other people need some quite specific guidance. And a kind of almost a compliance 
regime that they kind of disciplines them into focusing on certain things they need to get better at. So that's where the plantation and the rainforest kind of meet. You know, what where is it appropriate as a metaphor? And I and I kind of do say that a little bit in the book. There's a kind of managed rainforest, so if you like, the middle ground. But that's slightly less romantic, and it doesn't quite capture the spirit. <laughs> so this whole thing of the, sort of the letter and the spirit of something, do you know, it's like what you're trying to do is reach the point where the it's it's all it's rainforest. But on the way, and if you just go full rainforest, you just you, you there's a risk of things just withering and and people not thriving. So you've got to be looking out in the rainforest kind of psychology for for things which are not thriving and have good ways of intervening. And that could be with learners or with teachers. So like any metaphor, it starts breaking down if you get too literal about it. It's it's the spirit of it, you know. <laughs> and and I think, yeah, it's attractive to to want to control everything, isn't it? And I I know some schools where it's absolutely the right thing. Like you just need to. It just has to be like that because if you don't, you know, the, the you know it could be about behaviour or there's a lot of very inexperienced teachers guessing their way through. Uh, you know how to establish a curriculum, for example, when they don't really have the expertise to do it. And in that situation, talking about I trust my staff and let's go rainforest, it's just not appropriate. It's just they're not not in the right frame. But when you've got a, a quite a lot of experienced, mature teachers um, with a lot of knowledge and experience, you know, controlling them un- unnecessarily is just is the worst thing you can do. So. You know, it is about context, and even within a particular context, being nuanced about how it applies. Got it. Superb, Tom. Well, I, I, want, I want to turn now to, we're recording this kind of middle of 2018, and I'll be interested looking back over kind of my last few interviews in a few years' time, because there's been a definite kind of two kind of themes coming through them and that's knowledge and curriculum yeah. it seems to be the kind of buzzwords at the moment and i wonder kind of how long that will be the case but i certainly want to talk to you about curriculum tom because i've been fascinated by your views on it and the first thing i want to ask you is there's loads of talk about knowledge-based curriculums everybody's chatting that but what i'm interested in is is i don't fully understand what a knowledge-based curriculum is and specifically I don't understand what a non-knowledge-based curriculum is. I don't know whether that's just because I'm a maths teacher, but I I can't imagine a non-knowledge-based curriculum. So I wonder, could you just give, give me your take on it, please? Yeah, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot because I probably felt the same as a science teacher where it's always been packed with knowledge. I think my my take on it now is is really that knowledge... A knowledge-based curriculum is where you say there are a number of different d- dimensions to it. One of them is that you you, d- you wouldn't, for example, say you would, you would say that knowledge matters for its own sake. You know, you want students to know things, and actually, you probably interpret a lot of things like understanding or skills actually as forms of knowledge. And so, knowing things and knowing things in the long term is is a kind of a philosophy that you have. And what you want is to d- deliberately secure the maximum amount of knowledge in all of your students. And I, and I think that's really significant. So, for example, Dan Whittingham in his book, Why Don't Students Like School, talks about understanding being remembering in disguise. And I think that's really, really instructive. And you read that section, it makes a lot of sense to me. So you know, even when we think we understand something, it's not like we've transcended knowledge. We're just remembering knowledge in a certain form. And so I, I think it's got a sort of, it, it, it it's reinforced by some ideas about cognitive science, but it's also about, cultural capital and students who seem to be confident and successful have rich sources of knowledge on which to base their actions so 
Now, is a, how, can I, how can a curriculum be not knowledge-based? Well, I, I think it's when you just sort of assume knowledge kind of finds its way into your students by almost incidentally or with a level of kind of hope. <laughs> Whereas a knowledge-based curriculum is saying, I mean, we really need to be certain about this. And in order for that to happen, we need to do a couple of things. We need to specify what that knowledge is much more precisely. And we also need to do activities to ensure that knowledge is attained so that we can deliberately know we can build on it later. So there are some subjects where the knowledge curriculum is up for discussion. So in maths and science, that's less of a case. It's definitely true in history and English, where you have to actually choose the texts, you know, which books are we actually going to study. So actually what we learn is a big discussion. But even in science, say, let, what do we, what do, let's say I'm, I'm thinking about plants and photosynthesis and say, well, I, I don't know, and let, let, let's choose something like um, evolution and the story of natural selection. Which examples are we going to use? What do we want them to know about that? Well, it's no good just saying we want them to know them the general principles about natural selection. What does that mean? Well, you have to say, well, we mean we need them to know this, this, this and this. You know, what, what, what exactly do we mean by them knowing that? And it could be in, in, in physics, say, we want them to know about solids, liquids and gases. Well, what do you want to know about a solid? Exactly. What, what if, you, if you finish this and at what point? So a knowledge-based curriculum in science is saying we precisely need the students to know these main four facts about a solid. And by end of year seven, we expect all the students to have that knowledge. So we need to check that they do. And we, we spell it out. We specify it. But we also, knowledge, remember, isn't just about little factoids that you can just quiz on. We also want them to have experienced melting ice, boiling water, and and, make, and seeing, making sure they understand that steam is different from smoke when you burn wood. Now, that's knowledge. That's, that's mm. tacit knowledge. And a lot of kids actually confuse steam and smoke because they don't have any knowledge of those things because they haven't done it. So knowledge isn't just about factoids that you that you sort of pub quiz on. It's much more deep than that. So a good knowledge curriculum is saying tacit knowledge, which you can only gain from experience, is this. Factual knowledge is these specific things, which are things which we can write down and quiz on. And procedural knowledge are things which they need to practice a lot in order to be able to do them. So we need to make sure they can do them repeatedly and with a level of fluency. And those are these things that, like maths problems. So we need to be conscious of the types of knowledge, where they fit in the right sequence. And a knowledge-based curriculum is saying that cannot be just left to chance by doing stuff and hoping sometime later they understand smoke and steam and it will just come together in the end, you know, because it won't. <laughs> and uh, if you're really serious about I always think say this in my CPD, that when you're teaching something, you want all the students to know all of it. And, and it's not enough to just hope that some of them know some of it. That's just way inadequate compared with what you're really trying to do. So if you're committed to that, you want all of those kids that sit in front of you to know all of those things. What are you going to do differently? Well, it means usually spending it out first. Here you go, guys. You need to know all of this. Let's definitely tell you what you're meant to know. And then you have to check back that they do. And, and that's a very significant change. And I think, a knowledge-based curriculum has those elements. It's mapped out over the whole course. And yes, to be fair, I mean, anyone who says, I've always thought a knowledge-based curriculum, well, I'm sure you have. I mean, lots of people have, but they might not have been quite as conscious of it in that way. 
And there are lots of teachers I see where that is absolutely not what they're doing. So it, 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 there is knowledge they're dealing with, but it's not at the forefront of their thinking and it's not driving their planning and their, their teaching. That's in, it's interesting, that topic. It reminds me of kind of one of Doug Lemov's, one of my favourite, well, many favourite quotes from, from Doug, but one of them where he says, one of the key jobs of a teacher is to distinguish I, I taught it from they learnt it. And I guess you can kind of, a key component from judging by what you've said there of a knowledge-based curriculum is actually testing whether that knowledge has been understood and has been retained. Um, and I think that's something that often gets gets lost in the in the discussions of a knowledge-based knowledge curriculum, that it's it's one thing teaching it, but have the kids actually learned it and understood it and retained it? Does, does that make sense? Totally. In fact, one of the things I, I kind of feel like is, is a massive misreading of, to me, when, when I, certainly when I think of knowledge curriculum, is that some people associate a knowledge curriculum with teachers sort of being sort of even more di didactic and sort of telling. And I think, no, it's not. It's the opposite. It's actually being even more involved in questioning and checking for understanding. Yes. It's, it's much more interactive than the people associate it with and, and a really good knowledge driven teacher is sort of constantly probing and saying do you know can you give can you explain it properly in depth with all of these elements that we and, but not some of the random elements so yes but, so I, I think it's important if you, especially if you include the sort of tacit knowledge aspect because sometimes people think it's it's not it's the kind of you know what's the capital of Denmark type question and it, and it isn't it's like it's it's knowing that there are some things you can only know by doing them and by experiencing them. And that's also knowledge. And there are some types of knowledge which are best described as, say, procedures or skills or, or whatever. And I don't like getting into the whole knowledge skill thing because I just think it, you know, once you end up deciding what your definitions are, you can kind of probably all agree on it. But there's something that you just do by doing them fluently, but that you definitely know them. If you don't really declare them as like stated facts, you perform them, and that's still knowledge. It's still knowing things, knowing how to do something is 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 knowledge. But then, as a, one of the biggest weaknesses I see in teaching is that the teachers aren't aren't um, prepared to, or not sort of just thinking enough about how precise they need to be about what the students are meant to know. So they just hope that if we just air lots of information and toss it out into the room, hopefully stuff will kind of sink in and that was kind of okay. But actually, I often see that it just isn't. Students just weren't entirely sure what they were meant to remember, so they don't remember any of it because they, they didn't invest enough time in any specific bit. Got it, got it. And the, the next thing I want to talk about, I and mean, we could literally talk for hours just, just on curriculum, but I just, I just want to dig a little bit deeper before we move on to something else. What I found particularly useful, Tom, is, is the distinction you draw between the intended, enacted, and assessed curriculum. Before I ask you a couple more things about those, could you, could you just very briefly just explain the differences between the three? Okay, so the intended curriculum is sort of you know, what, what you write down in terms of the knowledge elements and the, the key experiences that you ought to do. So that's the kind of the, what, what you might see in a scheme of work. The enacted curriculum is what actually happens in the classroom. So the enacted mm. curriculum is, is the sum total of the things that actually go on in the room and, or in a classroom or in a... So the, the lived experience of the lessons, if you like, that's the enacted curriculum, which might may or may not be the same obviously related to the intended curriculum but it's quite different and then the assessed curriculum is that those are elements of that which you then test students on and, and you measure so that, that's essentially what those things are that, tim oates is the person that's, that's really the direct 
I think originated that type of distinction. And I think it's really, really important. It is. It, it, it's super important. And the kind of first thing I want to ask you is about this enacted curriculum, because this absolutely fascinates me, this. So you explain in the book, you say the enacted curriculum, the way it is delivered and experienced in any given classroom may vary significantly, even between colleagues sharing the same scheme of work, especially if they have different ideas about the way students should learn. Now, the reason I want to ask you just briefly about this, Tom, and, and the question is going to be as simple as, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And the reason I want to ask this is because I've had quite a few guests on this podcast there, uh, Danny Quinn from Michaela and Greg Ashman being two of the most notable, who essentially as heads of department, not quite so much script lessons, but they very much say this is this is how this lesson is going to be taught by all members of, of, of their department in in the sense that these are the examples you should use. These are the questions the kids should practice. If there's a way of introducing or demonstrating a concept, this is what you should use. And I know, for example, in our school and we're working on our schemes of work at the moment, we've just had a discussion today, kind of almost kind of a heated argument, because I was making the argument that actually I think that's quite a good thing, because when I was a when when I first started teaching, I didn't have a flipping clue how to plan a lesson or how to plan a sequence of lessons. I had too many other things going on in my head. So I'd actually would quite appreciate a more directed uh, way of, of, of pl planning lessons. But my colleagues were saying, no, 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 you've got to you've got to leave it up to the teachers. You've got to trust their professional judgment. So well, what's your take on it, Tom? Kind of how much should we kind of be directing to ensure that this enacted curriculum is more consistent across teachers and classes within the same school and department, if that makes sense? Well, I think it depends to a large degree on, on how good all the alternatives are. So I, I remember, you know, I'm not going to get too, too involved in, in the kind of the detail of it, but I, I've worked in a school, for example, where, the, the culture of some of the team was that we're all professionals. We trust you know each other, and we like to have a bit of autonomy. But because of that, mm. an, a, a newer teacher in the department, you know, going to sort of see how they're getting on, and they're watching some horribly horrible YouTube clip, which was low quality, bad choice, inappropriate for the for the level of the students. And you just think, well, why are you showing that? And it's because their culture was well. We kind of just browse and scrap around for resources, and this felt. I, I googled blah 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 and this came up and I thought it would be good and you think well how if we allow this to happen where the experience of the kids this is their moment for them learning this topic this is their yes. one time in their education where they're introduced to this, this amazing topic and why would even that to chance where a newish teacher feels that this is a good thing to do and it's wrong so that's inappropriate to me so when we say is it a good thing or a bad thing well I don't think it's appropriate for children to have an education, a curriculum determined by the randomness of kind of what different teachers feel like or they know enough about. Now, if everyone is excellent, so if you have teachers who are all experienced, knowledgeable, over time, you could probably argue that the differences between their approaches would, would you know, average out on it. And it does not, it's, absolute, it's not absolutely vital that every child gets an identical experience. But if there's even unevenness of quality or experience or confidence, then I don't think that is appropriate. That's not fair. That that's that's not fair on the teacher. And I'm the same as you. When I started teaching in in Winstanley College, we had a very precise uh, physics um, curriculum approach, which was a gift. I, I learned everything mm. from that. It was like questions, practicals. I just followed it, and I learned masses. And then I started to sort of uh, you know uh, experiment with things a bit. 
but not to begin with. I didn't know any better. I didn't know better questions than those questions. I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, it would take me hours. So I was grateful to have a really good structure. And similarly, as a novice maths teacher later, and I say novice because I used to be really good at teaching A-level, but then when I went to school where I had to teach, you know, lower set year eights or something, I thought, whoa, I had to really learn how to teach decimals and percentages. And that's a different whole ball game, and I don't know where to begin with that. So, yeah, having a structure. So the enacted curriculum. But it's not just that. It's also things like... Um, so in maths, I think, you know, if you're talking about maths, I think there are things like question sets, but there's also other things like, like how often do you get the students to come up and present a problem? Would you do that or not do it? Um, and that type of thing. You know, it's like, is that an experience that students should have at, at school, that it's a routine thing for them to come and present problems? And do we invest time in that to make them so that they're good at doing it? I, so personally, I think, yes, they should. That should be a kind of reasonably normal thing that children get used to it, modelling their own thinking in front of a group or whatever. Other teachers would probably think that's a waste of time. And are we just, again, is that is that art for discussion, or is that something you should agree is common? I, I think we should be at least discussing these things and then saying, um, you know, what's what's what what works and what doesn't. And then within that, there's still there's always, however prescribed you are, there's still room mm. for autonomy. I think teachers have tons of autonomy, and even though you feel it might look prescribed, I still feel like you have lots of scope for doing things and expressing your personality and, and so on without thinking you've some, somehow sacrificed yourself to the machine just because you sign up to a <laughs> first common scheme of work. Plus, it's a lot less work. I mean, you, it's, such a, it's a beautiful thing to share resources and say, no, I'm going to use yours, you use mine. And people who just sort of say, oh, I'd like to use my own PowerPoint. You think, well, come on, get over yourself. You don't need to. <laughs> just, you know... It just it give yourself a break and, and share the culture <laughs> of a team. It's much healthier that way. So there, are, I, I've you know I've mixed feelings both ways. I think you should uh, things like practical work, you know, in science or something. How many? When? Which experiments should you do? For what reason? How many? Would you do a demo of that, or would you do a class experiment for that? And that, there are good process reasons, logic reasons for doing those things, and at least you should discuss them. So the students, if you're going to teach today next year, you know, I asked my son these questions, you know, about when he was revising. You know, do, have you ever done that experiment? You know, have you ever, have you ever done the experiment with the, you know, the Eureka can to measure, the, you know, the volume of a, an irregular shape? And he will say, actually, I don't think we have. We kind of just talked about it. <laughs> and I just think, oh, okay, well, so you've actually physically done that. So actually, you learn quite a lot by doing it. I think that's in an active curriculum. So. I, I would think students ought to, in a school, you should say, no, these are the things which children ought to be able to, to have experience, so we must make sure they do. Yeah, I, 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 agree, with, I agree with you, Tom, and I, I always refer to it as kind of a lesson lottery. It shouldn't be the case that some kids dip out on, on an experience just because they happen to be in a different class to, to, to their, to their um, fellow peer. But then I guess we come down to the issue of deciding what are the essential elements and so on. But just, just this is particularly pertinent for me because literally t today I've just, uh, just finished day one of a three-day kind of scheme of work writing marathon with two of my other colleagues. And it was all kicking off in a friendly way. Like I've, I've known them for years and stuff. But one one thing that I don't think is controversial, and I think this is maybe um, analogous with your example from science um, in terms of mathematics, is kind of um, 
ways of teaching certain things like methods for teaching so algebra is a big one so we, we made a decision as a department that we were all going to teach solving and equations the same way because that means if kids ever swap classes or get a different teacher or whatever at least then um, there's been some consistency of approach so we're all happy to agree on that but then it started kicking off a little bit whenever we then started talking about what would be essential elements of each lesson that we would expect all teachers to do so I was saying well low stakes quiz you have to have a low stakes quiz in there there's got to be some kind of retrieval practice but then other teachers were like well no I, 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 I don't think that's necessarily an important part of the lesson so I guess my question is and I'm not expecting a, a perfect answer here Tom but just, just your personal opinion would there be kind of uh, setting aside kind of experiences that you think all, all students should have in terms of science would there be kind of more generic components of a lesson that you think every child should experience for example should there be some form of retrieval practice not directly related to the particular concept that's been studied in the lesson but based on prior content that they've studied last week last month would that be something that you would consider to be an essential component of every lesson are there any is there anything else that springs to mind okay so the first thing i say is i don't think you can i don't think i think i, th I think the unit of the lesson is the wrong thing to look at so i think it's mm, about a sequence okay. of lessons over time so i think across the series of lessons we are teaching a particular thing that you there are some things which are are sensible so Retreat, you know, for, so and you can use the kind of Barrett Rosenshine kind of principles if you like. There, you need to do some initial flushing out of prior knowledge, and so that you can build on it. So that's sensible. So I'd say, well, that's a, you know, you don't just dive in and start teaching a new topic. That would be odd. Um, you, you ought to do some modelling and showing students what what it looks like, and modelling standards, modelling processes, worked examples. You, you need practice, so you need a phase of students to, to learn, have time to practice. And yeah, and if it's any, you need retrieval practice. You need to be attending to long-term memory. So over a unit series of lessons, you need to be attending to making sure that knowledge is being embedded through retrieval practice, the so strengthening recall. And but I don't think it's sensible to start saying there's some kind of formula to that within an hour's unit. Mm. I think that's a mistake because actually. That you get into this sort of weird thing of people then thinking, oh my god, I've missed out on my retrieval practice. And <laughs> you get into sort of tech, check, checklist, sort of checklist kind of psychology, which I think is, you don't, you're not really thinking the reason. And I don't think that's good. You, what you need to be doing is making sure. Uh, and there are things like questioning. So I think there are forms of questioning, which I always value and, and ask people to do more of. But even, you know, we watch one lesson, one bit of a lesson. You think, well, you can't really be sure that they never do this. It's just that, well, I'm here now, I'm not seeing it. But so you discuss it with them, and you have to. If you see someone teach many times, you can start getting a feel of what's general. So I think that's important because with any lesson, it could be you could spend a whole lesson just doing practice, brilliant, and a whole other lesson doing Q and A, expositional stuff, and checking for understanding through questioning. And the practice happens tomorrow. I, I, I think that's absolutely fine. And some lessons can be entirely different in their purpose. So, I, I, but within that, I do think you should be saying, "Well, how are they going to remember that? How do you know they've learnt it? Um, how? Do, where did you model the, the the process?" And so there would be some requirements in that sense. Yeah, there would be some because that's what teaching is. It's not like there's literally anything you can do to be caught. There aren't. There are some things which are common features of good practice. And let's not pretend that's not true. I think there are. 
when you describe it in a reductive way, you actually can sometimes diminish the power of it. So I've just written this blog about Barrett Rosenstein's principles of instruction, and my last little bit at the bottom is, please don't turn this into a checklist, because Hmm, that would kill it. it. You want teachers to understand the rationale for all of these elements and do them and practice them from a perspective of having understood the reason and a belief, having a belief that they work and therefore they're going to practice them. As soon as you turn it into a checklist and people feel they're doing it because they're supposed to, you, 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 want, you undercut the, 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 this idea of teachers being thinkers who are really constantly trying to evaluate what they're doing. They just become like machines and who wants that? That's in, it's interesting that Tom because that, that's certainly a trend that I, I'm starting to see when research is kind of finding its way um, into schools but there's almost kind of like abridged forms of research so like I, I love um, some of these the summaries of, of Rosenshine's work where it's and you see it on posters in schools and stuff but my worry there is it almost does become kind of a checklist to think because Obviously, it's a shortened version of it. You've got the whole thing on one A4 piece of paper. But unless the teacher kind of takes the time to read the, the rationale behind it, the different ways of doing it, the, the, there is a danger, I think, that it, that it could become a checklist. Um, last question on this before we move on to something different, Tom. Um, if, if you were a head of department, um, do you have any view on what your kind of departmental meetings would look like? And, and the, the reason I ask this is I think... Often departmental meetings are a wasted opportunity in the sense that if they happen once a week or once a fortnight, you get a chance to get your team together. You've got a room of subject specific experts, all with the kind of same goal to improve the lives of of the students in front of them. And yet often, in my experience, departmental meetings just become admin central where you're filling out pointless forms. People are having a moan, all this. People are looking at the watch. When can I get home to get on with my marking and so on? Do you have any experience of kind of effective departmental meetings? Yeah, I do, you know. I definitely yeah I mean the, the the worst you know you don't want to start off with lots of jokes about biscuits and then reading out the minutes of the last meeting <laughs> and then 10 minutes more about the SLT questionnaire and I mean yeah <laughs> I, I, no I, I you know what when I when, when you sent me these questions in advance which I, mean, I haven't actually studied them but the one, one that pinged out to me and I was telling someone about it the other day I think it's the best question is you know what's your what's your ideal department meeting because what a brilliant question because how often does anyone get a chance to actually think about that? And, and then you say to them, okay, well, do that then, you know, just make your meetings like that. And, and I thought, well, I would have, my favorite department meetings are when you've created the conditions where there's nothing more important than this, which is, okay, guys, from our evaluation of teaching and learning in our department, the, this is an area where we, where we have, we need to sort of agree, discuss our approaches to the pedagogy and the setting out of the ideas. So we, we, we sort of introduce some some external idea, maybe some cognitive science or some thinking, and then you actually just say, so let's walk through it. Let, let's talk about how do we get kids to understand how to, uh, I don't know, multiply out brackets or how, how, a, how a transformer works or how to, how, to do, you know, how to do differentiation from first principles or something. You know, what, what's our approach? Let's take a qu- some questions or some problems. What are the problems that we find? What 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 are the common misconceptions? And let's share our thinking. And depends on the team, obviously. But sometimes you might need to bring some expertise. There's an issue of kind of you know blinding the blind sometimes, where we're all just sort of just chipping in our our bad idea. We don't want that. We want to actually have someone who can. And if you if you've got a good 
understanding of your team, sometimes what you've done is you've prepped somebody who you know is really good on this, and you say, someone sort of introduced some ideas, and it's concrete, it's tangible questions that you're actually looking at. You discuss it, and you look at the sequence of, so why would we do that? Do we all know why we multiply both sides? You know, do we talk about cross-multiplication or, or, or multiplying both sides or whatever? What? And we walk it through, and then... And you kind of discuss it and you practice it. And then you, and you, and you, what you do then is you make a commitment to, to an, an implementation. So you start saying, all right, so let's, when are we going to be able to implement that? When, what, when's your next opportunity? So you actually identify an opportunity in your actual teaching where you're going to do this thing and then report back. So that, that to me is a good, is a, and I've done that in physics with say, common misconceptions or using a particular piece of apparatus and, which has been fantastic. And I've done it with maths teaching with, say, further maths concepts, you know, where some teachers are not very comfortable with mechanics at A-level and see what's the difference between physics and maths mechanics where you've discussed it and you've fleshed it out and you've given examples and everyone feels that they've gained some knowledge and they've talked about the actual teaching that's about to come and so they're likely to use this idea. That, to me, is the best type of a department meeting where you think, God, I really, really got a lot out of that. And, and, and similarly, it's where you've turned scrutiny into, into CPD, so book scrutiny. I used to love this in my last school, a new head of maths came in. We made book scrutiny a joy. You know, we'd bring our books, and it was like you just come away learning so much about how other people teach through the way that their work was set out and how we use certain resources. And it wasn't like, show me your books. It was like, let's learn from each other. Let's just be open about it. And I just thought it was superb. So, we were scrutinising each other's books, but it felt collaborative and supportive because you'd be going... In fact, the best book was like a teach first teacher who was absolutely superb. But her, her, her kids' books were amazing. <laughs> you'd be going, sorry, but how do you get your kids' books to look so good? That's just incredible. <laughs> Why? How have you managed to do that? And we were just constantly quizzing her, like, well, that's brilliant. She just says, well, I just insist. <laughs> Uh, it was brilliant and for her to be empowered to sort of feel like she had a contribution to make to a whole department as a fairly new teacher was empowering so that type of meeting where you're really being collaborative is is, but focused on on the subject everyone goes away happy okay tom so i want to turn our attention away slightly from curriculum to to the thorny issue of of lesson observations and i've heard you speak about this and and you've written on it and I, i just find what you have to say kind of refreshing and fascinating so i'm kind of building this up it might be a big anti-climax now (laughs) but but hopefully not (laughs) so my first question to you is is what can and what can't we tell from lesson observations well you can you can tell whether there are some things going on that i've got more or less of a chance of leading to good outcomes in the end but, uh, but initially, it's only like a clue or a sort of suggestion of that. So you, it raises some questions. The more often you observe the same teacher or the more that you know about them in terms of other things you can triangulate with, like their outcomes and so on, the, the more refined that becomes. So you can see. So, for example, if, if a teacher is struggling with behavior management, you can see that straight away. If you feel that generally they're asking really lots of probing questions and They've got the students have got good resources that support long-term learning and so on. You, that gives you that that says well oh, that that that's sensible things to be doing. That looks good. Or if they're not asking many questions, and you you can kind of get a feel for the fact that they ought to be 
the way they explain things, how clear they are. And there's, there are things you can kind of see in the moment where you, you can kind of evaluate them. But you, I think it's important to, to think of it in terms of evaluation rather than sort of judgment, sort of in terms of like a level, because I think that's something that's really difficult to do. So what you can't tell in a lesson is whether the the degree of the questioning or the level of the the, the quality of the explanation is sufficient to secure good outcomes unless you don't in, when you don't know about those things. So you've got to be very cautious when you start making extrapolating from the observables to projected quality in the long run because you really can be wrong about that uh, and i've been wrong about that myself you know you actually think someone's a bit dull or something and actually they're great and everyone <laughs> loves them you just don't know enough about them and, I, and i've and i think that's really really important or you can think someone's really you know brilliant and actually they're not they're, they're actually they just don't get good results the students don't rate them in the long run you can you can find that but work cuts both ways so it's it yeah I think you have to be really cautious about about it. But on the other hand, I mean I've observed, I've observed thousands of lessons and I feel like I see common things. I think there are some things which are worth feeding back on because they're the things you can see. Like the, you, you can see things at the back of a class that you can't see when you're teaching a lesson. You can see how students process what they actually do while students teachers teaching and how quickly they engage with material. And sometimes you can point that out to a teacher that, you know, you thought that was happening. Actually, this was what was happening over here. And they weren't able to see that. So you can kind of give them like an extra pair of eyes. And if you've got a, the right kind of setup for that exchange of information, that can be quite useful to a teacher. But let's face it. I mean, a lot of the things to do with lesson observations is to do with the, the power dynamic between the observer and the person being observed and the consequences and the, the status of that is, is huge. And it has a massive bearing on whether... That information is used to improve the teacher or not yeah, yeah you're absolutely right well well let's let, let's try and make these observations then as useful as possible tom so so say yeah. you're, say you're going in to observe a lesson practically what what does that process look like what what do you do well actually when i just go in <laughs> yeah well what I, what I normally do is is try to let the lesson continue as as it always has because you know you normally i'm seeing part of a lesson and not, not necessarily the whole thing. So you go in and you watch, you just go in and you, you try to say, okay, well, how quickly can I work out what's going on here? And that's usually quite a good indication because, you, you know, you look at what the student's doing, what the teacher's saying, what's on the board, and you scan around, you look at the books, you look at what the students are engaged in, and you get a feel for what's happening. And I, I think that's obviously sounds obvious enough. But the next thing I'm doing, I was just sort of thinking, what's the teach? What, 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 what's it like to be in this lesson? You know, I'm sitting here. Am I learning? Am I being made to think? Am I going to have practice? And you start sort of, and I, and I normally, I have normally three areas that I look at. So I'm looking at basic expectations and, and the teacher's capacity to kind of be a setter of standards. And that, that can be about behavior management things. So it could be about quality things like, are they kind of insisting on good answers and are they insisting on quality responses in their writing or whatever? Is it that kind of standard setting element? I think it's something you can sort of pick up vibes about or kind of clues about. The second thing is questioning. So it's the most observable thing. How many questions, how many students are involved? Are the students passive and kind of not really feeling that they're ever going to be asked? 
Does it probing questioning? Does it go deeper than just the initial response? Do they ask process questions that Rosenstein talks about? You know, how did you know the answer? How did you work it out? Do they check for understanding? Do they get people to sort of repeat back? You know, right, let's see, have you understood it? Have you understood it? And then the final area is the, is the what I call the kind of knowledge curriculum side. So was it clear what they were meant to know? Was it clear what the process was going to be later, like which stuff that they're going to have to remember? Obviously, it depends on what type of the subject is because you know there are less observations in hair and beauty or or motor vehicle or something are different to economics a level or, 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 or drama so you know you, you've got to get a feel for the curriculum so anyway that, that's that's <laughs> i could go about it forever but that's those are the main things that i'm looking at so i, I feel like most of the lesson observations i ever do i feel like those are areas i can i can then store up kind of questions or things to discuss with the teacher or to feedback on to them and that's interesting you touched upon other subjects um i know myself i've been, I've been lucky enough um to, to observe certainly not not as many as you tom but but a fair few lessons and i don't know how much i'm picking up in in subjects that aren't mathematics i, I think i agree there are some kind of generics possibly the wrong word but some kind of common traits around questioning that that's certainly one that, that i always look for um, and kind of pupil involvement in the lesson. I think that's important. And the teacher probing and, and digging deeper. But beyond that, if I'm in a, a French lesson or even a science lesson, uh, you know, physics or biology or whatever, I, I think I'm missing quite quite a fair bit that I wouldn't be missing in a maths lesson. And th this is really brought home to me when you look at the kind of Ofsted framework for, for kind of what inspectors are looking for. And it's, it says for the maths one, and I assume this is similar for other things, kind of that you're looking for understanding, you're looking for conceptual development. And I'm not convinced I can see that outside my own area of expertise. Have, have you any advice or any opinion on when you're watching lessons that are kind of essentially outside your comfort zone or outside your your domain of expertise yeah i mean i i actually think you need to learn so and i, I think senior leaders are, are, you know, if you're deploying people in a school for example to be part of a team that's a, say, a quality assurance team or you know they get called those things it flitting around is 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 a is a is, is not as good an idea as focusing so over the years, and I've been doing this for a long time now, so I've seen most lessons, and actually, to be honest with you, I actually think I do understand most subjects. And I really do. I feel like I could go into most school subjects and have an idea of what I ought to be seeing because mm. I've seen so many of each type of lesson. When I've gone into a new environment, like recently working in FE for the first time, I've gone to a motor vehicle workshop or a salon or bricklaying kind of, place outside and first time i've done that i haven't got a clue what i'm looking at i'm not there going well you know, i'm not teaching them the brick lane very well i have no idea so what i do is i just go and see what goes on what's a brick lane lesson like i'm a total novice but i also know what the outcomes are like in the qualifications for that area so i'm i know that's a, and, and if i'm told the results for this area are excellent then that, then, and then I go and see it, and I go, okay, well, that's interesting. This process leads to good outcomes. And then I go in there again, and I see variation within the team of people doing the same thing. I get information about that, and I learn what the, what the kind of differences are. So I don't think it's sensible talking about one-off lesson observations as a thing that you can do well or not. It's about a whole process, and it's about at a school or college level, 
developing an understanding of what goes on in the long run and then seeing from any one lesson observation kind of where where there's a room for improvement and, and do you do you speak to the kids tom within these lessons and if, and if so what, what what kind of questions or what do you say to them i always i always try to i mean sometimes you know if you don't want to interrupt the silence kind of thing but yeah i do i ask them whether they know what they're supposed to be doing that's the first question <laughs> i ask uh and sometimes that's really instructive because sometimes they just say i, I literally yesterday i did this <laughs> it's so funny so it's like sometimes they just want to get you off your back so i said to a student <laughs> um what are you doing and it was a geography lesson he said i'm just doing the sheet and i said <laughs> Yeah, okay, look, I know you're doing a sheet. What's the sheet about? And then he just went off into this brilliant explanation of, you know, rivers, and it was just really good. <laughs> so his, his first instinct was just like, oh, you know, get go away. So he just, I'm doing the sheet. He thought I'd be happy with that. <laughs> but, um, but actually, he did know exactly what he was doing. And I asked them, what will it look like if you've done a really good job? How do you know what excellence is like? Mm. And I think that's really instructive. In a practical subject, for example, I've learned so much about this at, at Oldham College, you know, where you, you talk to a student who's making something. How do you know it's going to be great? How, mm. what, what's the standard you're aiming at? And sometimes they're, they're less sure than others, you know. Sometimes they're just doing a task and then at the, at the end of it, they'll just find out whether it was any good. And learning to kind of self-regulate as you go along, self-check, constantly refer, refer to a standard isn't something you can just you have to learn to do that so if it's in a school sort of math lesson I'll ask them to explain the questions to me and yesterday again I saw in a school I was in really interesting thing I saw a student um, doing seven times minus eight was um, well they, they'd written um what was it? No, seven, seven times minus six, and they'd written, they'd written 56. And I said, is that right? And they went, I said, what's seven times six? And she went, 42. She did it straight away. So I said, so why have you written 56? And it was like, it's just a transposition error. She'd just written the wrong number down. Yes. She didn't. And it was just like an error of writing. And it was so interesting. I think, oh, I, 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 it's of being able to see that. Like, the way you wrote, what you wrote down, even what you thought you'd written down. Yes. And that, that kind of error is so it's so complex, so much going on there. But to me, that was so interesting to sort of like engage with that and find out kind of how they think and then discuss that with the teacher. So, yeah, I, and, and I, our lesson observations really depend massively on what, what your feedback process is going to be as well. So if you're just there as an observer or if you're there to then knowing that you're going to speak to the teacher later, one-to-one as part of a process, makes a massive difference absolutely and 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 that's definitely what i what i want to touch upon next tom because as you say it's if the the feedback's the key to it if you're the teacher being observed if you don't hear from that observer you can't learn you can't develop and so on and yet i've been in kind of both sides of this as i'm sure you have i've I've received feedback and and i've given feedback and i just wonder as, as somebody giving feedback, what, what are your kind of principles or, or methodology or, or kind of strategies that you have for what, whatever the best phrase is for, for making the feedback that you give to teachers as effective as possible? Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to... I'd be wrong to sort of make some great claim about doing this particularly well, because I, I may or may not have done, but in, my, in, the, in the ideal situation, I've been... W- with the teacher 
and I know them. So my the, the, the probably the best case scenario is where you're observing teachers in a school where you you can see them regularly and you know them, and then you have a meeting with them and you say how do you think it went and they tell you and then you just you you have a conversation which starts off with that and you can sort of probe questions and start saying well how, what do you think was happening there and you you you, you have your list. Sometimes just through sort of pragmatism, you're there, you've been asked to come in and provide some kind of external eyes, and I, I do that a bit more now, and sometimes I feel like I'm cutting a few corners of that, so you're kind of having to sort of give them a bit more feedback that's more what I think is X, because you feel like I'm only there for a short time, so I'm just going to give you some things which I observed, and you can take it or leave it. And that's slightly probably less satisfactory, but sometimes it's insights which they wouldn't otherwise have been given, and you're just hoping they've got the kind of, confidence to kind of accept that your view is just your view and it's things for them to discuss but i think that's quite important that you you know that 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 can misfire so the, the best thing is when you're working with that teacher and a relationship where there's a kind of trust thing there but i do think sometimes you know, it's not a, that that's that's the danger with that is that everyone feels it's just it's too cozy and mm. what, I, what i what i found sometimes is that People will hear what they want to hear. Yes. So it's a big, I've discussed this lots of people. Sometimes what you wanted to say was, look, you know what, that wasn't that great. You know, <laughs> there's, you really need, you know, that questioning. It's, you're trying, but it's just, when I say try this, I mean like really do this lots, like you know, five, ten minutes extended with really good behavior management. And you just sort of just went dead over and it wasn't nearly enough. But if you just ask them, how did it went? They, they think they've done the thing. But if you sort of give them the impression that, oh, it's just a slight tweak on that and you'll be fine, they'll they'll go away and probably think they hardly have to do anything. So if you really meant, I really think you need to just really change that and do something much better, you kind of need to say so, I think. But you need to do it in a way which is going to make the teacher do it. And this is, this is, I, I've been reading this book, Leverage Leadership by Van Brick Santoyo. It, it, and because someone pointed that out to me, after I wrote a blog about lesson observations, and I, I hadn't actually read it, and it's got some really good stuff in there actually about about this whole dynamic. And one of the things I think is really key in this, is this whole thing of practice. So, and I've really been thinking about this since. So I'm not saying this is based on my experience so much. It's it's what I think I need to do in the future, <laughs> which mm. is this: you need to create the dialogue and then the actions, which are going to make the teacher practice the thing you want that needs to improve when just on their own mm. like because if they don't practice what spontaneously and willingly and with some energy they're not going to get better at it so if, if all you do is through some extensive feedback process tell somebody a whole roster of things that they're not very good at they like they reject half of it because it's just too much to bear and even the things they accept they may not really even practice because they never plan a strategy for doing the practicing and they might remember when the next time someone comes in and think, oh, blimey, I'm supposed to do that thing. And they kind of try to pull it out of the bag. <laughs> but that's not good enough. So leverage leadership is really, really good on saying, look, just pick the thing that you're going to really improve on. And I plan with that person when they're going to practice it, in what form. And then when you're, when you're going to come back next to help them and see how it's going. And planning both of those things, I think, is really, really key. But these need to be much more precise, but it does depend on you seeing them regularly. Mm. So, so that the whole of leverage leadership is predicated on the 
the idea that the observer is going to be seeing the teacher almost weekly, certainly fortnightly. And that's just totally unrealistic in lots of schools. It never happens. So you have this sort of very long-term cycles, one-off lesson observations with those are gaps in between. And that's where we sort of chuck feedback at people. And I, I think we need to rethink our whole approach in that sense. Really leverage leadership made me think, oh, we, we just so, we got it so wrong. We, we need to shift our culture massively in this country around observation and getting much more to do with and the mentoring and coaching. Mentoring and coaching is a whole sort of grey area people get confused by. I, I'm much more mentor like in my approach, which is I feel like I've got I've got experience. I've got I'm much more inclined to tell people things. <laughs> but coaching is much more about you know helping people come to their own conclusions and and work. And, and there are some people who are coachable and and you can do that with really well. But there are other teachers I've worked with where you feel like if I just let them do that, we're just not really going to move fast enough to the standard that I think they can be, they're capable of. So I'm going to be much more directive with this person because I feel I benefit from that. And sometimes it really works that way. Just, just before we move on to assessment, Tom, just a question that, that springs to mind that I think now is quite a, a good time to ask this. I was, um, I was having a conversation with Mark McCourt, who I knew you, you, you saw recently at Research Head uh, yeah. Rugby, um, and he's been on this podcast and he, he's coming on again. And he's, he's always got some views. He always, he always makes you think. And we were having a discussion um, about whether... T teachers essentially need to go through bad experiences and ineffective practice in order to learn or whether you can kind of fast track to them uh, fast track them through it and just listening to kind of you explain feedback there it it prompted me to think about this and for example like my, my book and a subtle kind of plunk for my book here I, I know a lot of kind of pgce students um, read it and, and and enjoy it but i wonder whether you know, you have to kind of experience the bad in order to, to kind of take on board the advice and, and get better. And Mark's very much of the opinion that you kind of teaching the first kind of three to five years is almost an apprenticeship and you get better and better. But you, you can't almost take on these these kind of expert strategies. I wonder, is, is that something you agree with? It, it, do, 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 do teachers have to go through some kind of experiences and almost be kind of left to fail a little bit? Or can we, or can we fast track them on on the path to expertise? I, I don't know if that makes sense, or if you've got a view on that, Tom. No, I, th I don't think you have to have. I don't think you have to have um, like had bad experiences, but I certainly think you need to learn from, learn to to, to doubt, to question what what you do, and 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 if you've created a culture and lots of, I mean, you know, honestly, I, I meet people like this all the time who've been absolutely battered by. Yes, regimes, and are very like monstrously defensive, and their default position is, "Look, I'm just going to defend myself." Yeah. And that's the that's the thing. In the, to to get to the point of people being receptive to kind of like critique and a discussion about performance, sometimes you have to go a long way to to get them even to the point where you, they can even stop sort of trying to constantly prove to you why why they were good. You think no, that's not the point. The point is, how could it have been better? Or could it have been better? And what else could you have done? And to get on the same page is is, is the first battle because mm. if they think you're there to judge them, then the whole the whole language and whole tone is, is just off off. But no, I think you can. I think you can. I think there are some good bets. I think we should stop talking about anything goes and 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 guessing our way through. I think there are some good bets, and I think there are some things you can say. Look, these these are 
until you know better, until you can confidently tell me that your, your idea really definitely works. I'm telling you, these things are well evidenced, good practice. You should start with these. And I, and I don't think that's a bad thing. But we need to understand why they're good things. And mental models about how teaching works are really key. And you can't really get those until you've taught quite a bit. This is why the expert model requires you to kind of a good understanding over the long term. So what really happens, I think, after a couple of years when you've been through a whole course is you, you, you see the whole thing through and think, okay, actually, those are early indications there. We're really, I could, those were important because the fact that they were struggling then, they weren't just going to kind of be all right later. That, that doesn't happen. Yes. If they're struggling now, that means they're never going to overcome it unless I do something now. And you learn that, you know, you learn like there isn't really a later that you can kind of like defer to. Yes. Other things you can see other elements. You can think it's okay. They'll, they'll, they'll mature. They'll, it's okay now because they don't need to get this perfectly now because they'll mature through this and it's an unnatural process. And then students get better at this and you learn the things where you need to intervene now or else you're stuffed and the things which will improve through practice and confidence. And that comes through experience. So, uh, there is, uh, and there's a lot of that, and you need to kind of have seen it for yourself to kind of really trust that. And I, and I, so yeah, it's a long-term game in that way, in that regard. That's so you know, but I, the, some teachers are far more self-reflective than others. It's a massive range. I, I find that so interesting. You know, the, the big variable in, when you're having a discussion with a teacher, some teachers are brilliant. They just like, uh, you know, they're really up for it. And others, it's just partly their experience. It's, it's they just they think the whole purpose of the discussion is to leave the room sort of having sort of got a good judgment or something. And it's, it, it, that's, that's the cultural shift that we need to make in the, in the system is to make all teachers feel that that's just not, not, not the agenda. The agenda is not to protect yourself. It's to embrace feedback and discussion and constant improvement. Got it. Superb. Right. Well, we're moving on to another biggie now, Tom, and that, that that's assessment. And again, I've, I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak a couple of times about assessment. And one of the bits I, I really enjoyed in the book is you describe an obsession with what you call macro summative assessment tracking. So what I'm interested here is how does this manifest itself most commonly in schools and, and why do you feel that's so bad? Um, well, it manifests itself in, in cells and schools where a high proportion of discourse between managers and assessment deadlines, entering data onto a onto a, onto a system, and the analysis of that data uh, to produce some sort of macro sort of global percentages and subgroup analysis, and, sort of, and the idea that if we broadly describe groups and deficits and gaps at a level of percentages of students getting X number of grades or whatever, that's kind of helping us move forward. And, well, actually, I, I just don't think it does. I, and I, even with schools who say that's helped them, I actually think they think it helped them. <laughs> if they did, it, it wasn't the thing that helped them. It manifests itself in assistant head teachers um, making half-termly packs of coloured chart printouts to give to the heads of department with action plans um, and, it, and it manifests itself in a kind of uh, this idea that 
you know, sub-leveling grades, which have no real meaning in terms of learning, are the thing which matter more. You know, if I if I was down the pub with some of my friends, or, or, or just sort of saying what I actually felt, <laughs> I could probably be quite rude and inappropriate about some of the attitudes I hear about assessment, because I really think a lot of senior leaders I encounter really don't know what they're doing, and and what they do is they impose this kind of like this little macro machine model onto assessment which has very little connection to you know, knowing whether you know jane can um ex- you know use quotes from Macbeth appropriately to explain shakespeare or can you know, do percentages and decimals it, it, it's just so far from that it's not funny but they think that you know 6.1 as a, a, a and 6.1 two are different and as someone has progressed from 5.7 to 6.1 you know that's better than 5.8 to and, and it's like you the level of their level of understanding of error so a lot of people who literally think error is kind of like excuses rather than a technical reality in assessment noise and when you have a lot of people who don't really get that, that noise and error is real and means that you cannot you cannot make comparisons um, with any kind of meaning. You, you end up people making a lot of comparisons which are totally un, unfounded. And that, that's basically what applies to a lot of progress talk, a lot of a lot of progress talk narrowing the gap. It's garbage. And a lot of <laughs> subgroup analysis is an absolute. It's, it's absolutely rubbish. I mean, it's just literally not worth doing. And I think all sorts of problems have arisen with like. You know, look at when Ray's online and all the little groups, subgroups, you've got sort of five kids from a certain ethnic group with a progress eight different people analysing that. It's, it's rubbish. It's just, it's, it's chasing a noise. And that's the problem with it. That it's, it's literally just not understood well enough at the level of error for people to, and people that are then actioning. It's one of my favourite all-time blogs is, is one on David Didow's website about, which is a guest blog actually from someone who wrote a thing about even doors and odd doors in his school in the early 2000s and showed that, you know, the subgroup analysis for even doors showed that the students' gap between even and odd door house numbers was far bigger than the gender gap in the scheme. <laughs> and, you know, there's this farcical thing that we do an intervention on the even door houses for kids <laughs> because, you know, the cause and effect and all that kind of thing. Uh, we the, talk to Becky Allen and, and people like that. You know, progress isn't a thing. I mean, sometimes people think that I'm sort of being voodoo. I know mathematically you can define a point here and define a point there and use it, but for me, progress say is is measuring something which doesn't exist, and it's a, it's it's really weird the way we've used it to compare schools. It's just wrong. Like it, I think the time will come when people look back on the, the progress eight years and think, what the hell, what the hell did we think was going on there? It's a it's a farce. What do you mean, Tom, when when you say progress doesn't exist? Because it's not it's not measurable. Think about it. Progress is what is it? Progress is a notion of moving through knowledge where you know more than you used to know, or you can do a skill better than you can used to do. But you can't measure that. You can't measure being better at adding fractions, you know, except in relation to say a certain type of test. But it depends on the test. It depends on the scores you give it. Depends on. So all you can do is use bell curve measures and say relative to the cohort, this is where they were, and now they're here, and relative position. But what does that even mean? It's, is that what you really want to measure? If you really want to measure, can they do fractions better? You can't put a number on that. You can't put a scale against that. It's just a notion. It's a 
feeling. It's a sort of a sense, and it depends on the tests you set and all sorts. So you can set the same test several times and get better at it. That's one thing. But that test doesn't, you don't know if that's good or bad compared mm. with this test over here. And you have this really odd thing where it's like a geography department is setting some tests in the science department. And we sort of say they're doing better in geography than they are in science. You have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> just, those teachers have differently come to a conclusion that roughly the bell curve position is this and roughly the bell curve position is this here. And you're hoping that they're kind of accurate enough to say they're doing better in geography than science. But you literally, you do not know that until they get the results. Because, okay. So that, that, that to me is the madness that goes around in schools about people doing flight paths and stuff is just bonkers. <laughs> okay, so, so let, let, <laughs> no, I like this is good. It's all about, about swearing. I thought I that was quite good. I dread to think what you say when you're down in the pub, Tom, if that's what you're saying on a podcast. So I like, I like, I like that one. So let, let me let me think, let me, let me um, kind of half play devil's advocate a little bit, but more just, just to try and get your take on it. So if you're, if you're a head of department then, a head of a maths department or a science department, however you want, want to think yeah. about it, what type of data would you actually collect? Because you surely you need to get some sense of what's going on in in lessons right so what what data are you interested in collecting test scores that's it i mean uh, it's just the most authentic thing it's tried and tested you know you set a test and you learn how to set tests which are sensible so you you, you get tests which span up uh, have questions which are tight enough so that you can diagnose from it so it's like a, a test on a certain thing and then it's got a question range, so it spans the difficulty range within that subject. And it's not too hard and it's not too easy. And you get that by looking over time about the, how well students perform. And then you set those tests regularly enough so that you get a feel for what they tell you. So, you know, that test that we always do on that topic, well, they've got the look at the range of marks. And that kind of gives you a feel for how so-and-so is doing compared with the average. And you know that in your cohorts generally that grade levels that you get are like this. And if the students are scoring this sort of level on tests, then maybe they're doing well or they're not doing well. But the information is at the level of something raw and meaningful to you in the context of your school and your subject. That's what you do. You start saying, you know, 15 out of 20 on your probability test is a level seven. It's just guessing. It's just a hunch and as long as you say look this is a hunch that's fine if you say it is 7.1 or something then you're just mad <laughs> so it's just being real the science tests what do you do how do you assess science I and mean, i've been a physics teacher for years you you design a test and sometimes the tests aren't good because they're just too hard and no one gets the question right or it's too easy and it's kind of it doesn't really tell you how it doesn't feel like you've challenged them so you to, to, to work out how someone's doing you need to stretch them to the point where they can't do things really and then to see kind of where they're where they find it hard and that's what good tests do because lots of kids have to take them to get a sense of the relative standards so testing is really basic in that level it's about setting questions and seeing how well people do it's only problematic when we we start moving away from the original scores and try to extrapolate into a kind of a bell curve marker thing which is all that that's all the grades are when when you've got systems and senior leaders who think that when you're in year nine or year eight you can tell that someone is on a trajectory for a five then they've lost the plot because <laughs> you just don't know that well, anyone, who th anyone who thinks that you can is deluded 
<laughs> well, um, I've I've had the pleasure of uh, of interviewing Daisy Christodoulou, and I've, I I love both the books, but particularly in making good progress. Um, yeah. I, we had a, we had a good discussion about the, the difference between formative and summative assessments, and so on. Now, I I have a problem, and I think Daisy does as well, with with um, kind of reactions to tests, and in particular question level analyses. And I wonder what your take on this is, Tom. So so let's say for example, um, I'm a maths teacher, and we we set a we give our kids a, a mock exam um, in year 11 perhaps it's at Christmas of year 11 um, and after that mock, we, mark, we mark the mock exam and we fill out one of these question level analyses and all of a sudden we have this beautiful spreadsheet where some questions are coloured in red some are in green and so on and the, the kind of thing there is you mark it and then the, the following week after the mock exam is, is kind of responding to that so back in class okay we're going we're gonna to go through the mock and what we're actually going to do is because question three this has shown that Quite a few of you are red for question three. You've got no marks or one mark. And that question happened to be on adding fractions. This means you don't know how to add fractions. So now I'm going to teach you for a lesson or two lessons how to add fractions. And my, my kind of issue of that has always been that's one particular question on one particular test. It, you, it could have been worded slightly dodgily. The kids could have been having an off day. And yet I see teachers really overreacting to that whenever they fill out this question level analysis. And I think it's because the question level analysis has taken flipping ages to put together so we, we better use it and, and and so on but do you have a take on that tom is, is that is that just me or, or do you have an issue with question level analyses or do you see them being used more effectively i think it's see that what you just described there is a classic example of people being way too sort of linear and sort of mm. uh, literal about you know on 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 a data set which is just totally inappropriate for that level of of, of analysis so if you want to know that, so generally speaking, in this cohort, students, generally speaking, are not very good at um, you know, a rate ratio or something. The one, the one question or ratio in the test is just way too inadequate for, to tell you that information. Mm. So it's just, it's just not enough. So what you need to do is you need to do, you know, the topic test you did on ratio would tell you more than the one ratio question in a bigger test. Yes. So that's where you need to do that. So what you need to do is you need to be much more pragmatic and holistic about this. So in, a, in the course of a course, and over time, if you've got experienced teachers, you know there are patterns. I don't think cohorts vary. I, I think it's a better bet to say, generally speaking, there are things which students find harder than others, and let's keep practicing those, than obsessing about this particular class got these particular things wrong, and therefore let's individualize it. Oh, I think that's a really massive risk, because you just could be so wrong about that. Whereas your your instinct and your experience tells you that, that look at the look at the patterns of the tests in this cohort maybe or the examiner's feedback from last year's exam tells you that you know these are the sort of things which students often get wrong. Let's teach those things. Let's teach the common misconceptions. Let's practice the things because the chances are that those are the things which are likely to be the things they need to practice on. And then we're more likely to be correct about that, I would say, than fussing about that particular question right or wrong like for what you the same reason you said that it, it could just be that one wording mm. i think it's fascinating i've seen this done lots of times where people show the relative performance on one question compared with another one slightly different and they look very similar and it's the illusion that you can tell if a question's the same just by looking at its structure but actually you can't yes you can only tell it it was hard because of how well everyone did on it yes and if de facto most people got it wrong then it was hard <laughs> if de facto most people got it right then it was easy and, and sometimes that can really surprise you and until you've done that quite a bit or listened to the people who have dare i say you kind of don't necessarily believe it so and, and then if you look at the workload issue 
I just think it's it's just a, a a big. So what you need to do is use that question level analysis, not in the micro, but a kind of like a broad trend thing. Because they think, just generally speaking, what does it tell me? Generally, it's adding to my information about the sorts of things we should be focusing on, and we keep practicing. And then practice lots of it. That's, that's the main thing about question level analysis: is that, that identifying practicable things is is one of the main things that we need to be doing. So even if you could identify that question four on a test, no one really did well on it. What would you get them to do to practice doing that? Especially if it's a multi-stage question, because which part of it is it the bit they're getting stuck at? I think your book's brilliant on this, by the way, about that thing of really analysing questions and practising steps rather than practising whole questions. I think that's really insightful. Oh, thank, thanks, Tom. We'll definitely keep that bit in the podcast, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question on um, assessment. You, you said if you were um, a head of department, then kind of tests um, is enough data for you to collect. And I can see that. But if you were a head teacher, as you obviously have been, and you want to get a sense of if there are any kind of problem areas across your school in, di in different subjects, is that enough just to see test kind of individual subject test data? Or do you not need to compare or have some way of comparing between subjects? So if you were a head teacher, what type of data would you like to see? Here's the thing. See, I, when I've, I haven't been in the situation, especially in the sort of post levels thing. I mean, I was a head teacher at probably one of those challenging times in, in recent times because of changes to GCSEs and uncertainty about maths and English at the same time as like rank uncertainty about seven, eight and nine. So, mm. you know, we spent two years in the school where basically in no year group did you have any kind of real solid information. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty stressful, I can tell you, especially when the governors are sort of not really believing you and you say, look, it's just really complicated. <laughs> I wanted you to give a nice, neat answer. And you say, well, I could, but I'd be basically lying because I can either tell you what you want to hear or kind of my, my guess and neither of those is kind of good news. So... <laughs> I actually think what's happened recently is that we've burst the bubble on this illusion that we ever knew with levels going, that you knew standards of broadly the same. It's just totally circular. You know, you just would force people to change their grades until they kind of told the same story. <laughs> so I really do believe this, and I mean this totally. I, I think that what you should be doing as a teacher now is getting out of the office, turning off the computer, and going into departments and looking at mark books and learning how each department assesses authentically when no one else is telling them what to do and learn what it looks like and learn that in art you, you judge standards like this there's a portfolio there's an exam there's set pieces there are criteria there are exemplars and excellent art looks like this in year seven eight nine ten eleven and you learn about it that's what you do you don't expect them to morph that into some grade system which you can just look at in your office and you go to the maths department and you say, how do you tell how the kids are doing? And how do you know that's a hard test or an easy test? And how do you reference that to the national cohort? Oh, we do maybe do a reference test every couple of years or something. And we have some data which tells us. And you go to the history department and MFL and around the school and you find out from them, what does authentic assessment look like? And when they're not sure, then you say, well, who does know? Go and find out from them. And what you do is you pick up knowledge as a head and as a leader about what real assessment is, and you start getting a sense that actually it's not meaningful to say how good you are in maths compared to you are in, math, in, in art. I mean, what even does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You're better at art than maths. 
that is an almost a nonsense thing to say in relation, except to people who know what the national cohort is. So it's, you, you stop even asking that question. You just say, kind of, where is this each child compared with what they ought to be doing? And are we pleased with that or not, is the question. How many kids are we concerned about? And why are we concerned? Are we concerned in art because of this? Are we concerned in maths because of this? And are we concerned in English because of this? And then we deal with sort of numbers of children and who they are about where we're worried and why. And we stop worrying about percentages and measuring that because it's a waste of time. You just go to the, you go direct to the issue, the student learning, the intervention is a curriculum intervention. That's what we should be doing. All micro, all in the raw. Because that's true and that's helpful. And if we're focusing on, tell me my neat story so I can put it into my computer, we're just wasting everyone's time because we're creating an illusion of something which isn't really there. Honestly, I, I think we just need to put a rocket under the whole of the, our data culture in, in education because it's just so, it's so sort of upside down. And uh, the time will come where <laughs> people will, honestly, it won't work. Leaders who are on MPQH or something will be, will be being taught, taught how, do, how do you assess an NFL? How do you assess in art? How do you assess in geography? That's what they should be educated about because that's what they need to understand. Not, you know, what does it mean if you've got a point two gap on you know, people premium boys? That's that's rubbish. That doesn't t- tell you anything. It doesn't help you. So that that's what I think. <laughs> that's great. That. So, so carry on because I could <laughs> got to go now. I could just. Go. I see this podcast is going to be five hours long with you <laughs> ranting about macro data systems. I know, and I get the sense soon we'll need an explicit rating from iTunes if you carry on with the time. So I think we'll, and that's absolutely, that's absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, I want to turn to to kind of one more kind of major area and then hand over to you for some reflections. And that that's the distinction you make between mode A and mode B teaching. And I've got a couple of questions about, about each mode I'd like to ask you. But before we dive into that, would you be able to just briefly explain the difference between between mode A and mode B teaching, please, Tom. Okay, well, mode A teaching is essentially the, the, the kind of direct the direct instruction or the instructional mode where I'm the expert, you're the novice, you need to, I, I, you know, I need to explain something to you, uh, ask questions to see how you've understood it, get you to practice it, assess you, give feedback, and that type of thing. So it's that kind of teacher-led, directed, managed teaching. And that is, you know, an important thing that every teacher needs to be able to do. And mode B teaching is where you sort of almost do everything else, where you say, you know, where you like collaborative groups or where the students sort of go off and maybe experiment with something or where it's just purely experimental. So I like like practical work in science or anything which involves investigations or lots of things, making products which are not, where the teacher's teaching you. So some subjects are kind of blatantly more mode A than mode B, but they are they are different. Uh, and and I, I use that distinction because when I'm saying mode A teaching works really, really well and instructional teaching works really well and it's very effective, I'm explicitly saying, but it's not the only thing that you need to include. Mm. So it's about being upfront from the beginning that when I'm saying it's effective and it's important and it's useful and it's powerful, it, it's not saying, but it's all there is to teaching. And, I, and that sometimes gets lost in the debate about whether there's a good way of teaching or not. But can I just, again, before we dive into it, can I clarify, are you saying that knowledge again is the distinguishing factor between which mode of teaching is most effective? Uh, no, because I think it, that 
I don't think it matters what it's about. It's not about comp- it's not, they're not sort of opposing things in terms of what's most effective. I think it's quite clear that instructional teaching, yeah, where knowledge, yeah, knowledge-based curriculum, where the teacher is the expert relative to the students, you know, in any kind of discipline, where the teacher is the main driver of the process. That's mode A teaching, and I can't think of any subject where that isn't relevant at least mm-hmm. some of the time, or or even quite a lot of the time. Mode B teaching is more where you kind of teacher stops taking the central role and kind of creates different structures for students to be more in you know driving things and whether it doesn't rely on the teacher's knowledge if you like to drive the process and, and then more and those things are really important and students can really teach themselves things and can share things and learn from each other and all sorts and need to be able to do that it's a question of how much of it they do yes so and, and, and it's for me, it's even if you zoom it down to, to a tiny amount of mode B, mode B teaching, um, you still need some. And it's never zero, <laughs> it's just, but it's still important. And sometimes you only need a little bit, you know, like like a bit like in the vitamins. You know, you don't need a lot of any one mineral in your diet. You just need enough. But without it, you're sick. <laughs> And I think that's true of, of a lot of that. So, for example, in science, you know, you don't have to do hours and hours of practical work, but you do need to do some because you've never seen any of it. You don't know what the theory is about. It just means nothing to you. Um, you only need to go to a museum once to know what a museum's like. Um, and that's a big experience. But you don't know you need to do constantly go to the museum. But you need to, you know, it's, what I mean. it's that type of thing. It's like a, it's an experience. It's a, a thing which you can relate to. But you do need quite a lot of time of teacher instruction to really embed knowledge into practice. So mode, mode A teaching is the dominant one because it's the thing which is the hardest thing and needs the most investment. So talking about which is the most important, I don't think is helpful. It's about how much of each one is appropriate for the discipline is a better question. Like how much, you know, in, mode, in, in maths, and listen to Mark McCourt on Saturday, and this thing about maths teachers should be, like, should be, to do maths and at what point is an investigation useful well it's useful at this point and but when you get students playing around with things and learning how to run kind of thinking around maths you start thinking well mode b teaching in maths actually has this other thing which is perhaps underused and it's all just teacher telling or, or kind of instructional but again as i said earlier it is interactive. Mode A teaching is not. Mm. It, 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 it's highly interactive. It's it's questioning. It's finding out what they understand. It's just that the process is mitigated through teacher interaction, whereas Mode B teaching can be kind of all kinds of things. And, and in, the, in, in my book, to be fair, it's like Mode A teaching is quite defined. Mode B teaching is kind of like a, a kind of an array of possibilities. It can be all kinds of things. There isn't really such a thing as mode B teaching in such as an identifiable process. It's just all kinds of things. It's a smorgasbord. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree. But I think what's particularly nice about the, the end of your book where you talk about this is is you actually list some kind of practical strategies, both for, for mode A and mode B. And I'd, I'd like to just end on a, on a couple of these, Tom, and I wonder if you could just talk us through them. So one that, one that kind of sprung to mind straight away from the mode A section was you described signal, pause, insist. 
as a <laughs> as a silver bullet strategy. And now yeah. my my listeners like these because we like um, and I say my listeners, it's it's me more than anybody. We like things that we can think about that will change our practice over weeks, months, and years. But also, there's nothing better than a takeaway that you can use, you know, the next day in your lessons and stuff. So as soon as I read silver bullet strategy, I'm thinking, right, okay, this this is good. So can you tell us a little bit about signal pause insist and do you have any tips for, for teachers listening who want to implement this in their lessons yeah so the reason you need this is because really good teaching means you need to get students thinking and talking and then pull them pull them to attention to discuss what they were saying a lot and, and the more confident you are doing that the better and i often find where teachers are not, not asking enough questions uh, or and getting kids to think in pairs it's because they're nervous about losing control so signal pause insist is where you simply train the class the signal for attention is this, you know, a countdown or a, a bell or a hand in the air. And then you give the signal. And then the, the crucial thing is that then you wait and you, you stand there and you hold the tent, you scan the room looking around. And then you, and then you, you, the insist part is that you, you, you sort of eyeball the students who are still not quite with you. And you're definite that, no, I mean all of you with me now. And it's like brilliant. And now, okay. What were you saying? And you get into the questioning. But it's that thing of the signal, because everyone, even adults, you know, take a few minutes to, yes. or seconds, anyway, to come back from the interactive hubbub, 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 and then everyone <laughs> being fully focused. And the idea that you can just say, okay, guys, blah, 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 and then, you know, carry on. It's just that it, the pause is key. Signal, everyone gets it. Pause, because you need time to everyone absorb what's happening, and then that last bit of insist is the only when you need it and you, you're saying nope and not letting anyone carry on whispering or whatever and then so that's that's the thing and it's really if you get good at that that means you'll you just feel like oh great i can use that whenever i want which means whenever i want i can ask you ask kids to in your pairs discuss and bring you back to attention every time i want and that's so powerful when you can feel that you can do that with confidence that's nice. I love that one. And I guess kind of directly following on from that and, and, and kind of calling back to something you said about lesson observations, how one thing you look for is, is the questioning from teachers and probing questions. Um, but one thing that, that kind of sprang to mind when I was reading that, and I, and I think about this lots, is, is how do we avoid kind of probing questions and dialogic teaching, becoming what Dylan William describes as, and it's one of my favourite quotes of all time. He says, a lot of questioning that he sees sometimes is a conversation between two people surrounded by a room of sleepy onlookers. And I know from experience that that's been a lot of my questioning, where I'll be having a brilliant conversation with one child and I'll be digging deeper, digging deeper, digging deeper. But... I don't know what the rest of the class are thinking. I don't know if they're thinking about the question or what's going on. So whereas with whole class kind of questioning where I'll use kind of diagnostic questions and every child has to participate by voting and so on, I feel then I've got kind of, and I don't know if control's the right word, but I've, I'll, I'll use it because I can't think of a better one. I've got kind of more control over their participation and their thinking in a way because they all have to actively participate. So if we're doing this kind of probing question and dialogic teaching, how do we avoid that, Tom? It being a kind of only useful for the person who's directly involved in that conversation at that moment moments if that makes sense well what you do is that you you link it with the other another strategy which is checking for understanding or even just simply cold calling where you 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 have an accountability process which you establish as routine which is that when everyone else is when someone has given a, an answer even an extended one you routinely check for understanding from other people so that and that if you do that all the time 
students learn that they need to listen attentively to what's happening when other people are speaking because they might need to report back what they said. So I've been talking to Craig. Craig gave me this really interesting explanation of, of you know, the, the cosine rule. And I, so I'm going to go to Michaela and say, so Michaela, what, let's just check if you've understood that. So what's Craig said then about the cosine rule? And then Michaela has to give me an answer. And she knows that I might do that, so she's listening. And I check whether she understood what you were saying. So that, to me, is like one of the many ways. They don't have to even add to it or, or develop it even. It's just, did you understand what was being said? And then, John, what, we did, what did you think? Did, is that, did Michaela pick up on all the bits, or is there something else? Or, and then you just involve people reporting back to you whether they've understood. And that, that to me, is the, is the way. And I, I think that's really important that people do that, so that you that you do encourage dialogue and extended discussion. But it's a diet, isn't it? So a diet of questioning is what you're after. And sometimes the whole class feedback, like you described, is really, really good because everyone has to contribute. But within that, you don't really get into the process and the thinking each time, do you? You just get yes. a kind of usually an answer. And it depends what subject it is as well, because obviously some sometimes you just can't do that. You know, what was Mary Shelley thinking in this sort of section of the Frankenstein? Mm. You, need a, you need an extended response to that. And, or even in a maths question, you know, how did you, what was your strategy? Why did you do those steps and how did you know what to do next? Talk me through it. And someone else, okay, you talk me through it. What, why did he do that and why? And you, and you just establish this routine. Someone explains, I'm going to, I'm going to check you've understood. And it could be you and then you have to then make sure that you do that really, really regularly. Yeah, that that's great, that Tom. And and if listeners haven't checked out my, my interview with Doug Lemov, um, he he's great speaking about the exact same things that you're talking about, and particularly. Doug's good at, at kind of coming up with responses if a child says I don't know or a child just refuses to participate so I, I think that that's fantastic Tom and um, last thing yeah. on mo- last thing on mode a teaching before I switch to mode B and um, a little kind of blast from the past whilst I was reading your book and um, think pair share now I, I remember when I first started teaching and um, think pair share it was on my PGCE course and it's one of those things that I've always kind of I've, I've always kind of used but whenever I kind of talk about it at conferences or, or work with other teachers i don't think it's in the kind of common vocabulary so certainly not these days but you what i liked is not only the fact that you mentioned it but you also kind of had some tips to make the practice as effective and successful as possible so i wonder if you could just talk briefly about what think pair share is and and, and why why you kind of rate it as an effective mode a strategy well it's effective because it's the quickest way to get everybody talking uh, and in a controlled way so you know, it's so common for, for a number of reasons, like, to, you know, the blo- teachers say to a room, Does, has anyone got any questions? Or did you all understand that, guys? Or or just asks one person. And you're kind of thinking, what's everyone thinking? And sometimes if you're cold calling, you're getting kind of these weirdly inhibited responses because sometimes you need to have a bit of a space to really think and be able to air a slightly bad answer or a half-formed answer in a safe environment where no one's going to hear it. And a, a, the little space of a pair is beautiful for that. So you can say to your friend who you know well, I haven't got a clue, do you? No, I haven't got a clue either. <laughs> well, I think it might be this. Are you sure? No, no, no. Um, and then and you, you can do that. You can admit that you're unsure or that you haven't got, that you don't know or you've forgotten. And as when you get them to report back, it's much more common for a student to say, we didn't know or we were unsure than ever admitting it on their own. That's the first thing. But also... What you do then is that you don't just say, what's the answer? You say to them, what were you guys saying? 
questions and then re they're reporting back their conversation. Uh, we think it's 2.1 because in that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, they, and it's just a safer way of responding rather than sort of committing to, I think the answer is this. And it, it gives the student, they just are able to, and then you just get more from them. And because lots of, because everyone's been doing that around the room, you then sample all the, you know, multiple different responses from that pair. So it just gets away from this blood out of the stone inhibition, which is very, very common in lessons when people are unsure. It, I just, I just want to say to teachers all the time, like, when they're sitting there, come on, guys, please, someone, anyone know? Anything? No, don't just say, guys, okay, in your pairs. And then suddenly everyone goes, blah, 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 chat, chat, chat. I do this in staff CPD, you know. It happens, it's a, it works like a dream. 100% success. In your pairs, discuss. Everyone's talking. Buzzy, great. But then, as I say in my thing, the, the tips are, you have to give people a specific task and a time limit. But if you just say in your pairs discuss and it's like people waffle on for hours or <laughs> you say, I want, okay, I want you to give me a precise answer and I want to have a, I want you to explain the strategy and you've got two minutes, bam, and you stick to two minutes and then you sure enough, you have to ask them for the strategy or in another lesson, it might be, okay, I want the three key, the key facts. I want three and then you must ask for three because, yeah. you know, and it, and it, and it makes it punchy goal focused and again you do then you link it to the the, the, the single pause assist in your pairs discuss single pause assist those two strategies i tell you what that's your pgc right there <laughs> <laughs> i like it i like it so there's like a lot of time in my just <laughs> practice those Done and dusted. Uh, a couple of questions on mode B teaching, and then uh, we'll, we'll do a few reflections, if that's okay, Tom. And the, the, the first one is, I assume that for for kind of mode B teaching to be effective, we, we've got to develop our students to be, for want of a better phrase, independent learners. And that's one thing that kind of gets chucked around left, right, and center. So I wonder, and again, approach it however you want, Tom, but what mistakes have you seen kind of teachers make trying to get their kids uh, to become independent learners and or what have you seen that actually does work to help students become independent and thus be able to benefit and thrive with this kind of mode b teaching oh wow um i, I think yeah independent learning isn't really a thing i, I think it's just uh you, you, you it's a it's a collection of multiple things which which some students are more likely to be able to do than others so, so for example, a, a good example of, uh, of of where it works is when you give people uh, the choice to respond with a, making a product of a various various different forms. And so, uh, I, I find that really really useful because it's a it's a choice they need to make. They make you need to make some decisions about how to respond, uh, and it's it, it certainly works well in. I don't know, like a subject like, I don't know, early on in science or geography at Key Stage 3, where you, you just want them to re reproduce, do some finding out and then sh share their thinking. And really, it doesn't matter how they do it. They don't need it to be in a certain format, like questions or... And kids making endless PowerPoints is, is, is really kind of tedious. So, because you know, it's hard to look at them all. But if you say, respond in any form you like, and you give some structure to that, so it's got to include this content, and I need to find out this and this. And you get students who can some some make a web. I mean, I've discovered amazing things at Kegs. You know, kids could make websites, kids could make videos, kids could make 
um, you know, sometimes you just wanted to write an essay, they'd make beautiful artifacts, booklets and things. And if you say just some of the time, at like once or you know, a few times in the year, do all these open response things, what you find is that students can just feel they kind of express themselves a bit. Mm. You know, they kind of express a bit of personality and they can do things. Like I just had these two hilarious boys I taught RE in year seven once and they, they call themselves, they, they learn how to make websites in year four in their primary school and they, 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 um, they had, they made this brilliant website about Christianity. Um, and then they made one about, um, Islam when I taught in year seven and they, they set their, their friends homework quizzes and it, <laughs> honestly, it was, it was breathtaking. The quality of it, it was, it was really, really impressive. If I showed you the website, you would not believe that two year seven boys made it. And I would never have known they could do that, but I just said, respond in any way you like and they said can i make a website i thought it'd be rubbish i said well go on see how we can <laughs> <laughs> move you away and that kind of thing is is exciting and that's the kind of rainforest going on it's like wow now why not do that but you're not saying everyone has to make a website because that's impossible some kids wouldn't know where to begin so you, you're going to give them a kind of way of structure but then see that's a safe choice making thing that leads to think kids then later on it's more important like to make choices about directing their own learning. If you've created a culture where you can try things and learn, now the, the risk of that is that you get dross. You know, students who are just left to just go off and find out and present, if they don't know what to do, it can be some very low quality copying of Wikipedia kind of thing. So you need to identify that in a more differentiated environment and give structure to that. So you say, knowing your knowledge of the students, look, here's a framework, answer these questions, so it's just a simple response, and... Uh, present that and that's your presentation it gives you a structure and some students don't need that scaffolding some do so it's about how much scaffolding does a kid need to make that a, a success thing for them rather than a kind of a regurgitation of failure thing and that's where the teacher's knowledge of the students comes in but that to me is a great example of mode b teaching where you you see what happens when you give people a challenge and you, you anticipate that students will suddenly will more support than others I like it. No, that that's spot on, Tom. And um, kind of last question on on mode B teaching. Um, I'm a bit of a confession, really. Really, this I was. Um, I, I'm getting better at this, but I'm 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 what I I'm what I consider a kind of closed mind maths teacher. That whenever I'm in kind of whole school inset training, I always think, well, that wouldn't work in maths. That wouldn't work in maths because I I think maths is different. Um, special is probably uh, the word that springs to mind. But I I think that maths is 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 not like all other subjects. Science is probably the kind of closest thing to it. And when I was reading kind of the, the, the latter part of your book, where you're listing some absolutely fascinating approaches to, to mode B teaching, a lot of them I'm thinking, yeah, I can see that working in history and, and English and so on, but not necessarily in maths. But I try to have an open mind. So I came across one that I absolutely loved that I would not in a million years have thought of. And that one was at structured speech events. And I thought, oh, God, actually, I, I can see that working. Now, feel free to talk about that. Or um, is there any other mode B approach that you feel is particularly effective in a subject like maths or, or just in maths in particular? Well, I, I think um, so one Bear in mind, we're talking about a whole curriculum and a diet. So yes. structured speech events in maths works well where you use ped what we used to call pedagogical inputs. So you say to a student, and I, I, I've seen some this is incredible examples of this. So, so next week, guys, you two, it's your turn. Because if, if everyone does it all lesson, it really doesn't work. It's got to be like 
on a like a rotation. You guys, it's your turn. So what, what I want you to do is take these questions and you're going to present them to the class and they pre- prepare uh, an exposition of really good model answers. And it's, you don't just do it cold. You go away, they rehearse, they practice, they come in and they explain some really, they explain really well to the class how to do some problems. And that, I think that's really, really powerful because they're gaining confidence. You're doing this sort of other type of skill development and personal confidence. And sometimes, I mean, I saw one girl at Hypergrave explain calculus, differentiation for first principles to a top set year, set, you know, year 10 maths. Bloody brilliant. Sorry, I swore. <laughs> um, are you allowed to do that on here? No, that's uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just really good. And it's like, you wouldn't get everyone to do that, but she was really right for that. You know, she really was up for it. And that was great. But she didn't just sort of rock up and do it. She prepared. And it was a good experience. And the students were really listening. And they learned to sort of ask good questions to each other. So I think that's important. But it's not like you wouldn't teach maths like that all the time. So you have to understand that as the, in the context of a, a part of a flow part of a unit part of a general experience and so it has has value and you're not trying to say no one's going to say that that works because over time you know no one's ever done a study to say how much of that type of teaching is the optimum no one's ever studied that but if we're going to encourage students to sort of see math as something you should do and something you should kind of enjoy and express then i think it, is, it has value in that other sense so and and, and i Another example for maths might be like an, an open-ended investigation. Now, we used to do maths investigations a lot where, where it was, I think, misjudged. But is a child going to go through the, the whole of their maths education with never having done a maths investigation? Surely not. I mean, that just sort of seems wrong to me. Even if 95% is teacher instruction, at some point you're going to say, see what happens when you explore this and what do you find? And that is mode B teaching it's and it's like there are some really good examples of it and there are lots of great gaming type things where that's structured well like you know leapfrog and, and various other things like that problem solving in a game type context where you're looking at patterns and links and linking it to the generalizing to equations playing with maths do you know what i mean so that that to me is what i would call mo- more mode b where you sort of see where kids go with it and that could be in the classroom doesn't have to be for homework or anything, but so I mean I think math does have specific types of things you can do. Oh yeah, I hundred percent agree with you, Tom. And again, for me, it's kind of it's finding the balance because I interviewed um, Anne Watson and John Mason, who would be kind of legends in, in the world of maths. And one of John Mason's kind of fa- favorite quotes is, "A maths lesson without an opportunity to generalize isn't a maths lesson." So that yeah. they and that would be, but again, so I have that in my head. But then I also have in my head, but actually, no, I need to kind of teach them the basic skills. And my, my kind of philosophy in the last kind of year or so has been I've got to teach them the kind of knowledge that then equips them to be able to really enjoy and benefit from these, to use your terminology, kind of mode B experiences. Whereas in the past, 
I think I would chuck them in at the deep end with these kind of these less structured activities or these investigations. And some of the kids would swim and thrive on it, but some of them would sink like a stone and it would be demoralizing for them because they, they, I hadn't equipped, I hadn't given them a fighting chance really. And for me, that's the kind of thing I'm wrestling with at the moment. And I'm leaning towards certainly more of the what you call mode A teaching. And crucially in that order, I think, I think mode A teaching to get the skills and the knowledge in place, get them um, low stakes quizzes, get them fluent at it, all that kind of thing. And then give them the kind of enriching experiences that can that they can then really enjoy because I often found in in my career that I would enjoy those activities a lot more than my kids would enjoy them and I think that was because I have the kind of knowledge to really spot the connections and 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 kind of see the the, the bigger picture from it um, if that makes sense so I think that's been the kind of shift in my teaching and I really like the way you put it that it's a diet I think that's right and I think there's a danger that um, I, I listened to Mark Lehane at, uh, at rugby and he said that there's a danger when you kind of start reading research, you can go kind of too far the other way. So you, so you read all like cognitive load theory and all this um, and you, you read about Bjork's desirable difficulties and that becomes your kind of obsession. And yeah. you, you've got to think that, no, actually, it's part of a kind of wider diet. And I think that that's why I really like your mode A, mode B splits. But I don't, I don't know if that, that makes sense. At I all totally all. agree. And, and, I, and I think that sometimes you need to be really careful. So, for example, I saw a teacher not so long ago try to introduce an area of a, 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 a circumference of a circle and, and the idea of pi by measuring string around, the, around some circles. And the, the students were coming up with these ratios. And. The problem is it just wasn't quite working for me that they were coming up with numbers which were not 3.14. And so essentially what was happening is that they were, the experience was, they weren't so subtle enough in their thinking to realize that actually that was a really almost like proof, like it's close to 3, 3.1. Yes. So what they were learning was that it's not the same number, whereas what they wanted them to learn is that it is. Yeah, and that's... so rather than sort of like deriving pi, this sort of practical experience was actually creating this horrible, shaky misconception that, it, 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 you know, it kind of depends. I thought that's just wrong. It's actually much secure to just say, look, it's pi. It's a here's this number. It works all the time. It's on your calculator. And then maybe later, sort of say, look, when they understand about error or like measures, you yes. sort of introduce that then. But it's not the way to introduce something like that. It just doesn't work. But yes. another one which I think does work is, you know, drawing like any triangle. Draw any triangle you like. Cut it up rip up the corners and it makes a straight line it's like magic it's pure it's like it's gold yeah every time any triangle try it and 180 degrees it's it's like that to me is a really secure thing because it's going to work and it works really well so you need to be conscious of, the, of how successful you're going to be in reinforcing the idea rather than undermining it and that's sort of science teachers experience you know you, you learn that in practical work there are some practicals you are really risky to do if you want people to feel secure in their knowledge because most practicals actually challenge your theory because they're a little bit messier than you want them to be that's really interesting uh, yeah I, i've not i've not quite framed it in my head that way but yeah almost kind of considering what could not not necessarily what could go wrong but if it doesn't quite come out exact which it's not going to do in a practical experiment or anything involving measuring yeah we're going to understand why that is as a teacher but actually that's yeah. another concept that we're asking kids to try and take on board whilst we're also introducing them to this new thing that that's yeah. fascinating that tom i like, I saw, I, like that. I saw a teacher recently do it with pythagoras like um gave them right angle triangles on a bit of paper got them to measure the sides and 
and he was hoping that they would be verifying Pythagoras. But they weren't verifying it. They were thinking, I've got 5.12 and it's supposed to be 5.1. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, that's the same. And they were thinking, yes. it's, not the same. Yes. it's exactly the same thing. So, no, don't do it that way. It, it's just too, you know, you're conflating different ideas there. And this idea that kind of it's discovery, it's helping. It's not helping. And you've got to be, you've got to be aware, aware of that in order to not do it. That's interesting. And again, I like your point there that there's nothing stopping you then using those kind of activities at the end of a topic unit. Once kids are secure in the concept of Pythagoras, you yeah. convince them that it works and then, okay, well, let's try it for ourselves. Now, isn't this interesting? It hasn't quite worked. Why is yeah. that? And yeah, that's good. I like that. I remember, I, one of the things I always remember when we talk about this is that uh, this type of thing is, I remember seeing, do you remember Ruth Lawrence, who was a famous, um, is a mass prodigy who went to Cambridge and she was, oh like, yes, yes, yes. And she was once on, on Blue Peter and, and she, they were, they asked her, you know, what her favorite lesson was. And, and she said when her, when she'd learned, um, sine and cosine and her dad asked her to go and find out the rules for shine and, you know, cosh yes. <laughs> hyper functions. And she went off and investigated and came up with the general rules. I just thought they were like, no, you were ready for that investigation. <laughs> <laughs> but your average kid yes. isn't so let's, yes. let's, let's sequence the investigation for the point when you're ready to kind of really embrace it rather than when it's like going to be whoa what the hell is going on that's fascinating that's brilliant tom okay well it's time for just a few quick reflections from you and then i'm going to hand over to you for your, for your big three so the first question is and i'll put a link to whatever your answer is here in the show notes what piece of research has most significantly influenced your thinking or your approach to teaching um, I, I, I think it was inside the black box, Dylan William. So absolutely, you know, 1990s, the fact that students, if you give them a grade and a comment, will, will only look at the comment and the grade and not the comment. Now that was, to us, that was like, we're stopping grading, you know. It was, <laughs> And it was, it was the idea that actually someone has thought about this and is saying this works and this doesn't and this is what a study has said. And we, none of us had ever heard of that before. It was a, it was a total eye-opener. So that to me was massive. And it, it almost like cut, paved the way for even the idea that an academic or researcher could tell teachers stuff about what they did. That's it. It's an oh, absolutely wonderful answer that. And again, it's, I mean, that, that, that's fairly old now, right? That, 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 yeah, that, that, that piece of... Yeah, I think. Jeez. And again, it's still so relevant today to, to kind of practices yeah. that are going on in school. And again, I'd, I've had Dylan on the show a couple of times now, and it's it, on the most recent interview. I asked him, um, uh, does he feel kind of upset or kind of let down or annoyed? Or what's the word to describe how kind of his work and, and Paul Black's work on formative assessment has kind of been distorted by schools and, and kind of misused. And yeah, he, he admitted he, it, it does, does upset him um, in a way because that's pure gold that, that the work gold, in that yeah. absolute gold. And yeah, it's, it needs to be more widely read. So that's, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful choice that Tom. Um, me, me second question is, um, have you changed your mind on anything since you wrote the book? And the reason I ask this is it was my first experience of, of writing a book when I put mine out and almost the, the day kind of I sent it to, to the, the publishers. Again, I started changing my mind, not drastically, but there are a few things that, that I would write differently now. And I've spoke about this, but I wonder, have you had the same experiences or anything you've changed your mind on since the, uh, the rainforest came out? There's, there's nothing in there which I think I wish I had not written. 
Mm. But there are some things I wish I'd included. So there are some things where I just think, oh, I wish I'd put something more, uh, more about worked examples and some more... I wish I'd spent a little more time talking about that. Like this thing I've just done analysing the Rose and Shine paper and, and kind mm. of these sort of four themes. I really wish I'd put that in there because I hadn't really quite analysed it enough at that stage. So I just think, you know, give it a year. I, I would, if I wrote that book now, I would, I'd be saying that I'd just be sharper on some of the, what does the research say? Because I feel like I know even more about that. And so that's, that's basically it. I'd have extended the kind of research kind of list I just feel like I've refined my knowledge there. But no, I mean, I think I stand by everything else in there, though, I think. <laughs> that's good. That's a very good side. I like that. And final question yeah. from me, Tom. And um, What do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? Um, when I first started teaching, um, I think I wish... Uh, two things. One of them is I, I wish I'd known more about long-term memory and retrieval practice and and this this whole notion of practice was was more was more obvious to me that was not explicit but the other one really at that that stage is about behavior management that um the kind of emotional the emotional aspect of behavior management i think i wish i'd been had a lot more insight and kind of guidance around the fact that it just is when you're early 20s teaching students who, who don't necessarily want to learn or whatever that the, that it's it's okay to to wrestle with your feelings because it's it isn't easy and i think that wasn't nearly made clear enough for this idea that you're kind of just supposed to be able to do this and put up with certain things and that to me could have been much better so i wish i'd known now i wish i, I wish we go back to my younger self and say look mate don't worry about it <laughs> you know don't chase that kid down the corridor it ain't worth it <laughs> <laughs> just just walk away from it it's fine you know that it will pass and and be better at kind of dealing with that kind of emotional reaction to behavior issues that's great. That's that's great advice, Tom. Well, it's uh, we've reached the point in the interview where it's time for your big three. Um, so are there any three websites or blog posts or, or whatever you want that you'd uh, recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to all these in the show notes. Okay. Well, <laughs> the three. I think I, th- I think the three uh, people that the three blogs that I I read the most of, I would say currently would be because um, it does change. I'm starting to waffle now. Um, <laughs> I, I have to say, David died out. Learning spy. I mean, I, I just think I, you know, he's gone through various various phases, but I still think he's he's the first blogger I really read. I think he's an absolutely superb uh, writer about education. I think someone who uh, I, I think is really, really great and someone who is, for me, embodies a kind of experienced teacher is Ros Walker about talking about science, physics teacher. And I really, she, has, she has this fantastic blog about you know, the reality of teaching and how you manage max, but she's also really thoughtful about knowledge and tracking. They're really interesting. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't, I'm going to be honest, I don't have a top three. I, I just, these are people I feel, feel like I, are just a sort of a range of types of blogs that I really enjoy reading. And another contemporary blogger who who I, I feel like whenever he writes something, I'm going to read it is Mark Enser, who's a geography teacher. Because he, to me, like he wrote a really good blog about Rose and Shine. He writes really well about how he translates cognitive science into his 
pedagogy. And I know he's not, none of these people are maths people. Is that wrong? No, no, this is this is great because um, I don't think any of these three have been suggested in our okay. big three before. So, Tom, this yeah. is absolutely ideal. So like David Dido is like kind of head honcho, you know, big thinker. And the other two are, are kind of specialists in a, like it's all about how you apply that in their subject. And they do it so brilliantly well. Uh, yeah. they, you know, they're probably too busy to write more blogs. But um, they, when they do, it's like it sticks out. And you think, yeah, I'm really going to read that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I know, um, for example, Mark Enser, he's writing the geography version of Make Every Lesson Count at the moment. And I think that'll be the first kind of geography book I, I buy because yeah. I just is his writing is, is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, they I can are. Make a long, I can make a long list of other people like, you know, Alex Quigley and John Thompson and Deborah Kidd, you know them. I mean, but I think people typically know them I and mean, they're, they're, they're kind of like part of the kind of mainstay culture of online, edgy Twitter and so on. But they, they're all really, and they're, I could make, my, my list is of blogs that I regularly <laughs> read is massive. So it, it's hard to pick three. No, you've, you've done some excellent choices there, Tom. Well, uh, we, we've reached the end of the interview, and I just. I want to thank you for, for two things, really. First is for, for giving up your time to, to speak to me. I've, we've gone way over time, as, as was always going to be the case, um, just because it's, yeah, I've just got so much to ask you and, and so much to talk about. So so thank you for giving up your time this evening. But I also just want to thank you for, for the book, really, and for, for the blog and, and for the talks you do, because... As I said before, it's I've, and I don't know if you agree with this, Tom. I feel it's we are we're lucky at the moment. It, it is a kind of golden age for 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 evidence based or evidence informed practice. And you've got these you, it, like the, the role of technology has played a part of this Twitter and and blogs and stuff. But particularly your book, I think it's come at the perfect time because it's. It's a nice collection of the kind of best findings, but it's it's also based on what I'd say is a unique experience. You've you've taken the best out of the kind of schools that you've taught in and you, you seem to have learnt from everything um, and realises realize that things don't always apply in all situations and and it's just there's so much clarity in it for me and I would wholeheartedly recommend everybody who listens to, to, to this whatever subject you teach to, to, to go and buy it and go and read it and if they're lucky enough to see you speak whether it's at Research Ed or at a conference to, to go and do it just because you speak a lot of sense Tom and the, the, there's not enough people doing that so so thank you for all you do and um, again thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today well, I've really enjoyed it honestly thank you so much So there you have it. There was my interview with Tom Sherrington. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I flipping love talking to Tom. I'll tell you what, like in the last few episodes, I mean, I've just been ridiculously lucky. I've got to talk to Dylan William, Harry Fletcher Ward, and now Tom. And what those episodes have all got in common is they're all kind of focused around a book, but branch off into loads of different areas. And crucially, the time has flipping flown by. I spoke to Tom for over two and a half hours and it felt like about 15 minutes. I'm just so, so lucky to be able to speak to these people. And I'm so grateful that they give up their time to speak to me. So what are my takeaways from this episode? Well, 
I could literally go on for longer than the actual interview itself, but to try and condense things, I've chosen four things that we perhaps haven't really spoken about much on this podcast over the last couple of years. And that, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about speaking to Tom is that some of the areas we got to delve into were, were kind of new areas for me, things that I hadn't really considered in depth. So let's start with um, what I thought was a really useful way of thinking about the different forms of instruction and experiences kids get in school. I love the way that Tom phrases this as kind of a diet. It's a kind of balanced diet of instruction and experiences. And I really like the pill metaphor. So think of a vitamin pill, as Tom spoke about. You only need a little bit of each vitamin But if you don't get any aspect of certain vitamins, you probably get ill or you may even die if we're getting a bit morbid about it. So I I spoke about this at the end of my Research Ed Takeaway podcast with Gemma Sherwood that since I've become obsessed with research, there's a danger that you can go too far one way. And I think that direct and explicit instruction and silent teacher and low stakes quizzes, that that's all students need to succeed and thrive. But now I've kind of got this pill metaphor going around in my head. I'm thinking, no, that's not enough. They need a little dose of inquiry. They need a dose of investigation. They need a dose of what Tom spoke about, the structured speak events, speech events. And if you don't give kids access to these kind of experiences, then it's, it's not a balanced diet and inevitably they're going to suffer. Now for me, the the order that kids get these is still the key to it. Um, I'm I'm not going to tell a lie there. I'm I'm sticking with that. I still think if I can equip kids with a baseline knowledge, some kind of proficiency and a taste of success in the basics, then they're going to really thrive on, on these experiences even more than if I presented them without that knowledge. But it has just made me even more certain that I do need to give kids these rich inquiry, investigative, problem-solving experiences. So that's more kind of a, a note to self. And also, I should take a risk because what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that it doesn't go according to plan, this particular lesson. But if it's just a small part of the kid's experience, I can learn from that and I can reteach it if needs be. But it could be just a magical experience that kind of transforms kids' lives. So one of my, I've kind of got two aims for the podcast going forward. One is to really, really learn from the expertise at primary school level. And I've got some incredible guests lined up to do that. And my second aim is to is to challenge myself to kind of revisit the teachers who are thriving using inquiry and problem solving. Speak to them and learn from them because I've got to get this balance right. And my fear is possibly I've tilted too far one way. Who knows? So that's my first takeaway. The second is another thing I really like from what Tom says, and that's safe bets, the idea of a safe bet. Now, again, as you'll know, if you've tried to dive into the wonderful world of education research, just like any research, there's kind of contradictions and conflictions and people saying one thing, people saying another, going on left, right and center. And it's the world will be lovely if everybody just reached the consensus that this is the best way to teach. So there's no guarantees. So based on that, maybe it's wrong to to prescribe everything. And this is very pertinent for me at the moment, as I spoke about with my conversation with Tom, that um, I'm currently helping two colleagues write a key stage three scheme of work in, in my school. And I'll talk about this a little bit later on in two of the other takeaways. But going into the process, I was very much of the opinion that we should kind of prescribe a lot of things, how teachers teach. And this this goes um, back to my conversation with Danny Quinn and Greg Ashman. But there's no guarantees that this is necessarily the right way and teachers have different strengths and so on. 
But I like the phrase safe bets. There are certain things that you can be pretty sure are going to have a positive impact. Not all things. Some things you can be more sure than others. But things like, for me anyway, retrieval practice. And certainly for maths, the idea of interleaving, combining the current topic you're teaching with topics that kids have studied in the past. For me, that does two things. Taps into the spacing effect so kids are getting regular practice of things. They're never going too long without having to recall them from long-term memory. But also the, this kind of constant shifting between topics just makes kids much better when it comes to GCSE exams and they get some weird and wonderful questions. So it, for me, interleaving and retrieval practice are what Tom would call safe bets or, or what, certainly what I would call safe bets for, for part of maths lessons. And I think that they should be regular parts, not necessarily of every lesson. And I really like what Tom said, that the lesson is perhaps not the best unit of time to, to consider planning. And we've heard that from lots of guests. We've heard that from Chris Bolton. We've heard that from Danny Quinn. But within a sequence of lessons or within a topic unit, for me, retrieval practice and interleaving are those safe bets that need including. And then there will be other things that for me would be desirable, such as silent teacher, example problem pair, intelligent practice, purpose, purposeful practice, um, but some teachers may choose to leave those out but for me they will be included but definitely safe bets retrieval practice and interleaving and um, the third takeaway was was departmental meetings now I, I like the fact that Tom said this was kind of my best question I asked I don't know what he thought about the other questions but he particularly liked the departmental meetings one and I'm pleased about that because as I said to Tom in the introduction to the question um, it's not really an area I think that's regularly considered and yet what an opportunity, what an absolute opportunity when you've got all the teachers of the same subject gathered together for a period, regular periods of time, maybe once a week, maybe uh, once a fortnight, for a short period of time, what an opportunity that is. And that's why I wanted to know from Tom, if he was head of department, what would he do to get the most out of these? And he talked about pedagogy. He talked about teachers sharing ideas for delivering topics, ideas for getting explanations sharp and so on. And I thought this really complemented nicely what um, Ollie Lovell, a previous podcast guest, spoke about with his departmental meetings. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I strongly, strongly recommend it, no matter what subject you teach, because Ollie has a really kind of structured way to get the best out of departmental meetings. And we're experiencing this um, at the moment ourselves because we're launching a new scheme of work, something that I'm going to dive into with the final takeaway in a second. But there's lots of new elements to this scheme of work where we're making the purposeful practice, the intelligent practice, um, the mastery, the interweaving, um, really kind of explicit in the scheme of work. But we're aware that a lot of our staff are going to need some real guidance for how to deliver this. It's different from what we've done before. And for us, departmental meetings are going to be the key to that. So every week we're going to have a focused pedagogy sec section, <laughs> section on what's coming up in the next couple of weeks in our year seven and year eight scheme of work, just to check that staff are happy with the, the, the delivery, to share some ideas and so on. But crucially, and I don't know if this is just me, but this for me feels different to what I see a lot in departmental meetings that's kind of disguised as pedagogy, and that's bring along a favorite resource for teaching this topic. I mean, I've run these sessions myself, so we'll, we'll be doing, uh, let's think, solving linear equations will be coming up next week for year eight. Can everybody bring along a favorite resource for teaching solving linear equations? And what you tend to get there is people going on tests, finding a five-star jigsaw or mystery or PowerPoint or whatever, and just presenting that for a couple of minutes. For me, that's not effective pedagogy. 
Resources have a part to play, of course, but it's how you use those resources. And before we even go near a resource, it's how we're actually going to introduce the concepts of solving linear equations. What examples are we going to use? What model are we going to use? What practice questions are we going to give kids? What words are we going to choose in our explanation? They're the things that you, for me, you need to be tapping into the expertise within your department. So I think a focused pedagogy sec section, <laughs> I really can't say that word, in every departmental meeting that takes a topic and doesn't just look at resources, but talks, even such a question as such as, how would you explain this to students? Or I like, what would be the first example you would go through with students? Or what would be the first question you would ask students? Or what visual representation would you use? Or can everybody script the, the explanation that they would give to explain a concept? That then just stimulates the proper discussions that need to be going on about pedagogy. And for me, it's such a positive experience. It's like, I talk about this in the book, it's like when you get um, teachers to write diagnostic questions together. For me, it cuts out all the crap that can surround picking favorite resources and different views on that. And it focuses straight on the pedagogy. And for me, that's the most important thing. So yeah, departmental meetings, I'm a little bit obsessed with these. And I've got plans for how I'm going to be tapping into the world's expertise to get their kind of takeaways on what effective departmental meetings are. That'll be coming to the podcast um, in the next academic year. So what's my final takeaway? And I said this would be a short takeaway. It, it, it really isn't going to be because I'm, I'm going to go to town on this one. This is data and assessment. Now, a bit of a story here. This is it's kind of serendipitous. I think that's the word that I interviewed Tom um, on the, at this particular time. Because, as I mentioned um, in the interview and throughout this takeaway, I'm currently working with colleagues to rewrite our year seven and year eight schemes of work because <laughs> our current ones that we use, and I can say this because I wrote them, are not that good, if I'm entirely honest. Um, they don't prepare kids for the, the demands of the new GCSE. I don't think the, the order that the topics come in... Um, isn't the right order. I don't think it doesn't lend itself well to this interleaving approach. Um, it doesn't separate topics that could get easily confused, such as area and perimeter and all this kind of thing. There's many reasons that um, I don't think it's entirely fit for purpose at the moment. So myself and two other colleagues, I'll give them a shout out, Gaz and Joe, we're currently rewriting our scheme of work. And in fact, just today, we've actually pitched it to our senior leadership team. They're the first people after our head of department, Karen, uh, to see our scheme of work. And we were dead, dead excited to show them. We, we got it all structured, all these different elements of the lessons, all this purposeful practice, all this kind of stuff. And after we'd done, after Gaz and Joe had done the pitch and I was kind of sat at the back of the room, I was dead, dead proud of, of kind of how they presented it and everything. But our um, deputy head, Andrea, and I know she listens to this podcast, um, so this will be a good test of whether she actually does, um, in fact. Um, the question she asked after Gaz and Joe's presentation is, what about the assessment? Where's the assessment? And Alison, um, the head teacher, followed that up with, how do we know the kids are making progress? What data are we collecting? Where's our valid measures of progress? And this really got me thinking, because this was the day after um, I'd interviewed Tom. So kind of data was swimming around in my head and assessment and, and all the collection of data and all the points Tom made uh, was swimming around in my head. So before I go into kind of my thoughts on this, I just want you to, to kind of ask yourself three questions and feel free to, to pause this if you want. Um, I'd imagine if you listen to this podcast, you're either a teacher 
or you're a head of department, which is a teacher as well, or you're a senior leader. They tend to be the three kind of main people um, who listen to this. So do, whatever your role is, can I just ask you to consider what is the most useful data for you? So if you're a teacher, what data actually informs your teaching? What data tells you something useful about your students that therefore allows you to teach more effectively? And if you're a head of department, what data do you have that's the most useful for allowing you to keep an eye on how things are progressing in your department, to help direct you to teachers or classes who may need help, or to help identify best practice um, within a particular class or from a particular teacher that then can be shared and disseminated across the department. Or if you're a senior leader or a head teacher, what data is the most useful for you for identifying, again, either problem areas within departments, within classes, or best practice within departments and classes that can be then shared. So just, just be kind of mulling those questions over. What data is actually most useful for you? Because one of the things Tom says when I've heard him talk, and he's put this in a blog, and it's an absolutely brilliant question. <laughs> he, he, he says, imagine you came into work one day and all of your data had been completely wiped from your system. Everything's gone. All those beautiful colored in spreadsheets, they've gone. Sims, clear, absolutely uh, disappeared. The question Tom asks is, if that was the scenario, how long would it take before a student suffered as a result of that? And whenever that question's asked, your immediate reaction is, oh yeah, pr pretty quickly, I think. But then when you think about it, or certainly when I think about it, I'm not sure a kid would suffer because a lot of the data that I enter, I'm gonna be entirely honest, is just for the sake of entering it because we've always collected data that way. Every teacher's collecting data that way. So we just do it. And this will be homework scores. And this will be kind of end of topic tests. And crucially, and this is something I'm going to dig into in a second, it will be levels, levels and grades and so on. Now, if all of that disappeared, would it radically change what I did? Would it? Would I have lost some information that's going to really negatively affect my teaching? I, d I don't think it would. Certainly not the level stuff. And um, that that can go. And well, let, let me just carry on. Let, let, let me just talk, and I'll, I, it'll be a bit kind of muddled up this because I'm just formulating these thoughts but hopefully it's going to make sense and um, it was interesting what Tom said that if he was head of department or, or a teacher the data that is useful is kind of topic specific data based on kind of quizzes end of topic quizzes now for me that's useful in the sense that it's formative so if I know that I have set um, a end of topic quiz on ratio and my class gets on average four out of ten there's either a problem with the test or if the test's a pretty decent one and we've got all issues about what on earth decent means and I've chatted with, with that with Daisy Christodoulou, but as long as there's not some fundamental obvious problem with that, that test, then something's gone wrong with their understanding of ratio or I've not covered it or all the content or something like that. But that tells me something actually quite useful. Ratio is a bit of an issue. Now, we've got to be careful here because we've got to separate learning from performance. So if I just do that ratio quiz, let, let's flip it around. If on average kids get nine out of 10 on this ratio quiz, but I've, I've given it them 
um, straight after I've taught them ratio, then I can be pretty sure that they're, they're performing well at it, but I can't be pretty sure that they've learned it or understood it unless I give that test or questions from that test or questions on ratio at some point in the future, either as part of low stakes quizzes or non-topic non specific homework, something like that. But definitely, uh, data on topic-specific assessments is pretty useful in a formative sense. The problem comes when you then try to assign that a level, and it's a flipping huge problem, because how on earth do you do it? And my problem is, it's it, it's not so much the, well it is, <laughs> I was going to say it's not so much the assigning of a level, but it is, but it's also the reaction to what happens to that data. So, let, let's take a little scenario here. Um, let's say that you have uh, set, you've, you've just taught ratio to your class and they've got an average nine out of 10, brilliant. And the next topic you teach uh, is solving linear equations and all of a sudden they get four out of 10. Does that mean that they haven't made, those kids haven't made any progress? Well, no, that's absolutely nonsense to, to say because they are two completely different topics. But that's what it looks like in a spreadsheet. If I have nine out of 10 and four out of 10, then that looks like these kids have regressed in terms of progress. And as soon as I start trying to assign some kind of level to that, what on earth am I gonna do? And what I end up doing is what many teachers do is that you just keep kind of ticking up the progress, right? You, you keep whatever level they're on, however you measure it, 7.1, 7.2, well, let's just stick it up to 7.3, 7.4 or keep it steady because as soon as you show that that, if you, as soon as you indicate that that kid hasn't made any progress, then all hell breaks loose. Parents are on the phone and it's all kicking off. Whereas we know as teachers that there are a lot of reasons why um, a class could go from nine out of 10 to four out of 10. The, the main one being that they're two completely flipping different topics. So progress isn't a linear thing in maths. That's such a cliche to say, but it's true. But also, um, kids are good at different things at different times. So the whole notion of trying to come up with aggregated levels and so on is, is a load of flipping nonsense. And it, and it just causes more harm than good. And as I say, it's such a reaction to that data. So, but let's take it back to the situation I'm in now. So we've got this new scheme of work. So how on earth are we going to report progress or keep a measure on progress? Is that even possible? Well, I think it's possible once the scheme of work has run through kind of three, four, five or six years, because if you keep using the same tests over and over again, you get a feel for it, right? So if it becomes a regular thing that kids do well on the ratio test, but not on the solving linear equations test, then it's probably not something to worry about or it's an indication that you need to sort the test out. It's certainly not an indication that the kids are, are struggling with their understanding or you may need to look at the way that, that it's being taught or so on. But it, it's probably not an indication that the kids all of a sudden are regressing in their understanding of mathematics. But you can only do that if you built up a bank of data, a bank of experience um, from previous cohorts that have gone through this process. Because as Tom says, um, Cohorts don't tend to change so much um, over time. But if you're like us now, launching this new scheme of work with new assessments and all that kind of thing, then you don't have that kind of past cohort data to rely on. So what on earth do you do? Um, so I was thinking this, and I, I, I'm understanding why Andrea, our, our line manager, is kind of asking this question, what are we gonna to report to, to, to kids? And my fear is, we're just gonna end up going back to the same old rubbish where we just kind of keep 
coming up with levels left, right and centre and just saying things that kind of keep us out of trouble. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but I, I see that um, in, in a great amount of schools. For me, the it's formative is the key data. If, if it's not formative, if it doesn't tell me something that's going to improve how I deliver my lessons to kids, then it's a bit of a waste of time. And if a child is on a level 7.1, what on earth that means, or a grade 7A, or whatever you want to call it, I have no flipping idea how to get them to a grade 7B, or a 7C, or an 8. I have no flipping idea. And looking at um, a spreadsheet full of data showing me that they were on a 6C at Christmas, and now they're on a 7A, or whatever it is, that's not going to help me. Whereas if I do have results from topic-specific tests, and forget the level, but if I do know that, for example, they got four out of 10 on that, then at least I know that that is a place to start. But for me, the ultimate answer to this, and this sounds like I'm a dodgy salesman, but I was driving home really thinking hard about this, and it's completely free, so hopefully it's not, not too dodgy. Uh, for me, the answer is something similar to what we do on diagnostic questions. So every time a child answers a question on diagnostic questions, um, the, the specific area of mathematics that that question's about is tagged. So um, if, you, uh, if you set your kids a kind of mixed topic homework and there's a question on linear equations and one on fractions and one on ratio and so on, each time they answer, um, it's tagged with this is a linear equation question and so on. And we have a thing called a knowledge wheel and you, you'll have seen this if you've used diagnostic questions before and you can call up this knowledge wheel for, for any child or any class or any cohort, girls, boys, and so on. And basically it shows you every area of mathematics um, with, on just one diagram. And the more green that particular area, the more successful kids have been in that. If it's amber, they've got a few questions wrong. If it's red, they've got loads of questions wrong. Now, what's for me, what's important about that is that that's cumulative over time. So if you're regularly setting um, perhaps low stakes quizzes via diagnostic questions or mixed topic homeworks via diagnostic questions, once you get kind of a couple of months into it and kids have answered a couple of hundred questions, a really clear picture starts to emerge about what areas are strengths and what areas are weaknesses. And particularly if you're doing this over time, you get this separation of learning from performance. So just because an area is green straight away, it, if they haven't actually learned it and not able to retain that and reproduce that, pretty quickly that green starts to go to amber, starts to go to red. Now for me, that's useful data. That's useful for me as a teacher because for any child or any class, just like that, and that's a click of the fingers, so a bit of a sound effect there, I can identify areas, trouble areas, and I can see the particular questions that have caused trouble, and that will be really informative for me as a teacher. Indeed, that's what I do with year 11s. When I'm planning kind of my final 20 lessons building up to GCSE, I do it all using the data from diagnostic questions. Um, and, and it's useful for the students to, to get a sense of it um, as well. Um, it's really, really informative to them. Far more informative to say you're on a grade B, but you sorry, that's, that shows how outdated I am. You're on a grade six, but your target's a grade seven. What are you going to do to improve? Well, they don't have a flipping clue. But again, if they've got this picture, this cumulative, this formative data that's showing them um, areas of strength, areas of weakness, and particularly the questions that kind of go behind that, then for me, that's really, really useful. And I think that's going to be useful to a head of department as well, because again, that's a way of um, identifying problem areas, and it's a way of identifying good practice as well. If one particular teacher for their class is green for the whole of solving linear equations, and some of the departments are, are amber and red, then let's speak to that teacher and find out what they're doing. So, I'm still still early days for me with data, and I know it sounds pathetic, but I've I've I've, not, I've never really considered 
the importance of data in, and assessment in so much as it has a direct impact on me. And it's, of course, I've spoke to Daisy Christodoulou, the kind of queen of data and assessment, and I've, I've read her book. But I think it's only now because I'm faced with this dilemma or this challenge of we've got this brand new scheme of work, but how are we going to evidence progress? What kind of data are we going to collect and what are we going to do with that data? And as I say, my instinct at the moment is to try and avoid turning it into levels or grades because I think it's an impossible task. I think it's a pointless task. But maybe that's just me. So I'll repeat my final question, then I'm going to shut up. If you are a teacher, a head of department or a senior leader, what is the most useful data for you? Have a think about it. Send me a tweet on Twitter. Copy Tom in as well, because he knows far more about this stuff than me. And I'm going to return to this data stuff again, I think next year on the podcast. And I think I've got a way of kind of collecting wisdom from around the country and around the world on this. Anyway, I have banged on for flipping far too long here. As I say, this takeaway, there, there is danger that it's, that it's longer than the actual podcast itself. So all that remains for me to do is to uh, thank uh, Tom for being an absolutely brilliant guest. As I say, check out his book. And if you get a chance to hear him speak, I promise you that you won't regret it. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And um, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, uh, just drop me an email. Um, I can do you a little kind of advert, do you a good deal. And you get to uh, speak to this wonderfully intelligent and engaged audience that you all are. And speaking of that intelligent and engaged audience, thank you so much for continuing to listen to this podcast. I love getting your messages, telling me how you using it and you're spreading the word and so on and I have got some wonderful wonderful guests and events and all that kind of stuff and I've got some new ideas for the podcast I'm dead 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 excited so hopefully the future's rosy but please keep listening please keep spreading the word you take care of yourselves and bye for now <laughs>